Today on the podcast, we continue our series on getting to know all the branches of Mormon fundamentalism. I have Jacob Vedrine on this episode to talk about the LeBarons. Now, this is going to be a two-part episode. On this part one, we talk about some crucial church history in the Nauvoo period that goes in depth on the Council of Fifty and it's significant to the LeBarons' claims of authority. Next, we cover Benjamin F. Johnson and how his priesthood line got passed down to the LeBarons. And finish up by talking about Alma Deir LeBaron. Stick around for a fascinating discussion about Mormon doctrine and history on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, search out the blog post, and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Jacob, you're back again, man. I think this is number four, right? Uh Uh-huh. Technically five. We we did two on Adam God. We did um, the interview with William and the discussion with William. And then we we did one on plural marriage. So this is number five. That's right. Number five. That's right. I forgive me. This is episode now number eighty six, and so I uh, they're starting to run together on me. Starting to get about as old as you are. Yeah, Just kidding. They are. They are. <laughs> Holy cow! Between you and Michael Ness, man, I'm getting lambasted on the age thing. Wow. You wait. You wait. Your time's coming. Your kids are going to start getting in zingers, and yeah. you'll you'll be like, oh, that hurt, but. Dude, the reason, the, as as we talked about on the phone, the re, the reason I had you on is I'm trying to do kind of a series on uh, different branches of fundamentalism, and one of those branches it absolutely has to be covered the LeBarons. Now, obviously, um, you coming on makes sense for two reasons: one, you're a LeBaron, and then two, you are really good at digging up sources and looking at history in a very impartial way and i find that to be super helpful in these sorts of discussions so let's talk about your experience a little bit right what what doctrines you found there that attracted you to that so what got me into fundamentalism first of all is we we kind of briefly covered in our 
first interview was it was all started off really with the Adam God doctrine. And I just, you know, gained a testimony of that. And I loved that doctrine and how it expounded our relationship to God and brought God closer to us. And the other early doctrine that I stumbled upon that, that really stood out to me as, as being something important and significant is the principle of rebaptism. And as soon as I learned about that through my, you know, digging online, I just was like, whoa, that is, that's just makes so much sense because, you know, it's, it, 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 baptism is, you know, such a vital part of the gospel, but most of us go through it when we're eight and, you know, we normally don't experience the deadness to our former life and our, you know, real seeking God at that age. You know, it normally we, we have to go through a period of, of maturation and spiritual maturity before we really do start to have a strong relationship with God. I mean, I'm not saying that nobody at age eight is having those experiences, but I'm just saying that I don't think most people, you know, when they're still, you know, when they're still a child are going to be having all those blessings that should flow from baptism. And so it makes sense that baptism would be entered multiple times throughout your life, as was taught in early Mormonism. Yeah. Yeah. So that those were the things like, that initially drew you to fundamentalism. Yeah. So, so those were the first principles I was liking and I was still mainstream member of the church and you know, I was, I wasn't really looking for authority or groups at that point. I was just looking to learn. I just wanted to learn everything I could about my religious tradition, my, my faith that I've been raised in um, and what has been lost over time. And as I'm, as I'm starting to do some digging online into these principles, um, I've stumbled upon a discussion forum. And this is about, you know, September of 2014 that was a discussion forum on the principles of the gospel. And it was filled with people of all different stripes. It was filled with academic mainstream Latter-day Saints. It was filled with church apologists, but it was also, but it was mainly filled with fundamentalists. It was people who were a part of, of a wide variety of different fundamentalist backgrounds. There were some people, all sorts of different groups. There were some people from Centennial Park in there. There was some people who were in the AUB in there, uh, Peterson group members, um, people who are Ross LeBaronites who've come from the, the LeBaron tradition, as well as independents. There was just almost, you know, it was just a wide variety of different views and positions on, um, on doctrine, on priesthood. And I, it literally popped up just at the right time. And when I was, you know, digging into the fullness of the gospel. And what's funny is the, the principal topic of this discussion forum was the 1890 manifesto and, you know, the context and the circumstances surrounding the 1890 manifesto. And that, you know, is obviously one of the other big issues that gets people into fundamentalism is learning about the history surrounding the manifesto and learning that plural marriage is still perpetuated long after the manifesto and that there was a very messy history of church leaders slowly giving up plural marriage. It wasn't an abrupt thing. And so in, I was very grateful to be able to um, read the discussions in this forum and then start to um, study materials that were being shared in this forum. 
and also to um, you know get to interact with people of, of all these different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was doing this, um, you know, there, you know, th- there's some principles that just really stood out to me as, as being important. And, you know, and some of the material that was shared on the forum that I just, that just rung so true that I didn't care what source it was. I was still active in the mainstream LDS church. I, but when, when truth, you know, truth is truth and, you know, regardless of the source and there was materials being shared that just rung true to me. Um, one of the early papers that I read that really rung true to me was a paper on the Nauvoo doctrine in light of Book of Mormon prophecy, which was basically expounding how, you know, the restoration is almost a two-tiered restoration. Joseph Smith initially restores the Church of Christ to the earth with its ordinances and its offices and, you know, priesthood organization, and he gets that all complete, you know, you know, basically by the year 1836, when the Kirtland Temple is completed. And then in the Kirtland Temple, he receives higher authority from Moses, Elias, and Elijah. And he begins to institute new principles and new higher priesthood organizations near the end of his life using this authority that he received in the Kirtland Temple. So some people see like the Nauvoo, which is the last period of Joseph Smith's life, the Nauvoo period is being very contradictory to the the earlier parts of the restoration. But as this paper really demonstrated, it showed that actually the Book of Mormon prophesies that if the saints are faithful to the first principles or the lesser things contained in the Book of Mormon, then would the greater things later be manifest to them. And and Jesus in the Book of Mormon quotes the prophecy of Malachi to the Nephites, and then it says that he expounded the prophecy to them. But then, it, but then that's when Mormon goes, "I can't really tell you everything that Jesus was teaching the people at that time. You know, I'm only supposed to write the lesser things." Um, and then another thing in the Book of Mormon that really stood out as significant is the Book of Mormon over and over again talks about how there is uh, going to be a work of the Father that would come forth after the church is built upon, built up to, to Christ and God the Father. And so then this work of the Father is described as restoring the covenants with his, the, the house of Israel. And specifically, it talks about the covenants which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob received. And those covenants, when you go back to Genesis, these are the same covenants and promises that are promised in the through temple participation and the sealing blessings. And so it's very powerful when you realize that the earliest revelations that Joseph Smith received were alluding to and establishing that there would be these newer doctrines introduced near the, you know, later on in the church. And so I, that was just a strong faith promoter, promoter to me. Um, And then another paper that just really stood out to me was called So You Want Celestial Glory. And both these papers were written by a historian and theologian called Fred Collier. And So You Want Celestial Glory kind of outlines, it it goes through the degrees of glory and it kind of expounds an understanding of the degrees of glory. And it lays out that, um, you know, the when we go through either through the atonement by accepting Jesus Christ and and repenting of our sins, we are made clean that way. Or as it's revealed in section, I believe 19 of the doctrine and covenants, we have to, if we don't accept Christ and his atonement, that we are going to have to pay the price for our own sins in the spirit world. And we will have to make our own, 
restitution for, you know, our mistakes and, and our sins in this life. But then everyone, when they, so every, if you pay for your sins in the spirit world, that means that you're going to be clean after that, right? If you're, if you're paying the price for them, then, you know, you are clean then. So what's fundamentally the difference between a celestial person, a terrestrial person and a telestial person. And Fred really expounded in this paper that, you know, the, the, the real difference between those, the three kinds of people is what motivates them. And the, a telestial person really has to be motivated by fear of punishment to do the right thing. They need a King to, you know, that they need a policeman and a king to keep them in line. A mm. uh, terrestrial person is the honorable and just in the world is what DNC 76 says about them. And well, an honor. So what, so, you know, what's the difference between someone who's honorable and just versus a celestial person, which says is valiant in, in the testimony of Jesus. Well, somebody who's honorable and just isn't necessarily self-sacrificing and, you know, very charitable in the way they interact with others. They can, you know, the honorable just are those who are fair and square with other people, but they are fundamentally working for a wage. You know, they, they, you know, they, they'll keep their, you know, they're honorable. They'll keep their end of the agreement, but they're, they're working for a reward. They want something out of doing the right thing. Um, in contrast, those who are truly celestial people are those who really lose themselves in the service of others. They aren't, looking for the they aren't doing it for the reward or the prize they fundamentally because of who they are they are striving to uplift others and that's fundamentally what god is you know he says his work and his glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man so and god you know he's got everything that he could possibly want right he has this the all the blessings and glories of, of the celestial kingdom and so what does somebody who has everything do? The, the thing that's significant to God is to try to uplift others and bring them up to his level where he is. And so we learn to emulate God when we are striving to give ourselves and lose ourselves in the service of others and trying to, um, you know, emulate what Jesus Christ had, where Jesus, I think, that, you know, the New Testament talks about how Christ loved us first, you know, that he, he, he sacrificed his life for us, even, you know, when we were wicked and in our sins, so that we can have the opportunity to repent, to have the atonement, and and to, you know, ultimately have a celestial resurrection if we live faithful to his precepts. So, you know, th this just rang so true to me, this, this concept of um, the importance of selfless love, and, you know, that that's ultimately what is core thing that makes a person a celestial person it's not having your authority done by you know it's not picking the right religion it's not um picking the, the you know getting the right ordinances done it's fundamentally about who you are at the core of of who of your person i don't know does that ring true to you as well yeah absolutely it does i i think look i <clears throat> I want to do my best to be that guy who's just like constantly um, approaching things from a purely self selfless point of view. However, I have to admit that that part of my motivation, at least right now, is to make sure I'm with my family forever. Right. Mm -hmm. It was that question about will I get to see my dad again that ultimately started me down this whole path of Mormonism. 
And so I, I think, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong or inherent with saying, what are some of the rewards for living like this? Right. I mean, obviously if, if, if this was just an exercise in learning to become selfless, there's a lot of ways of doing that, but there, there has to be some sort of reward there. Right. Well, obviously God is just, and it wouldn't be just to, you know, to, to not reward the faithful. Right. We, you know, that's, this is something that comes up in, in Job where he's going through all these sacrifices and then God at the end, you know, gives him double for every, you know, he, he proved himself faithful, you know, in spite of all the hardships, you know, in spite of, you know, even though he seems like he's doing the right thing, bad things are happening to him in every possible way. And he's in, afflicted in every possible way, but he still stays true and faithful because he knows that God is just and that God will work things out in the end. Right. So, yeah. You know, yeah. and I think, I, I, I think part of it is, you know, there is a struggle, like all of us, I, I, I don't think anyone ultimately falls strictly in one category, at least, you know, I think that there's variations based on the circumstances and what you're, um, you're, you're doing, but it's ultimately what you're striving to be. Like, hopefully we move beyond the stage in life where we are doing things because we're afraid we're going to go to hell. Right. You know, hopefully right. we are doing the right thing, not because of fear of punishment, hope, you know, it, you know, we're, you know, there's the, that you know moving up to because god is just and god will reward the faithful you know that's that's an improvement in, motiv in motivation but obviously the best motivation is when you're not really seeking for you know your own glory but you're actually you know and and i i you know having you know you know relationship with your family that's obviously something important and that's you know obviously you know something that's natural um, but then we also have to accept kind of in the gospel where, where Jesus at the same time kind of says, you know, who do you love more? You know, do you right. love your, your, your family more than me? And it's obviously we should ultimately accept to, that we love Christ right. above all, right? It's kind of the ultimate test of the gospel. And hopefully we don't have to, you know, that's obviously the hardest test. And, and I, I feel for anyone who has to deal with having to choose between their religion and in their relationship with Jesus Christ and their family. But, you know, there are people who have to do that. And, and Brigham Young said that was a very common thing in the early days of the restoration where they, you know, a lot of people to gather with the saints basically had to say goodbye to their, their non-member family who, you know, obviously didn't accept the gospel and wouldn't be gathering to be with the saints in Utah. And so, right. you know, you know, there's, you know, the, there's that hardship that, that comes with it, but there's also the reward, um, you know, the, and I think the reward isn't just, you know, the blessings, but also that peace that comes through doing the right thing and through having that love and service for others. Like, um, you know, like the story you tell about what your, your, your what your dad would do, um, you know, his, his, his charity that he would do for complete strangers during, you know, Christmas season. And so, you know, I, I think there's a joy in the, the giving of self that we ultimately, you know, we struggle with, but I think we ultimately do need to strive to, to have that kind of selflessness. Um, well, yeah. You know, and after, after I said that, I, I thought, okay, so what is it that I do in my family that I find so rewarding? 
And then I was like, well, wait, I'm just constantly of service, right? So in some ways it could kind of be a, you know, a circular train of thought, right? Um, what do I do now that's so important to me? Well, it's making sure that my wives are happy and my children are happy and healthy. And and so, um, yeah, I think it can kind of be circular in that way. So, so my girls are starting to get to the age where they can really appreciate birthdays and, and, and get really excited for that. And, you know, when they were, when, when they're, when they turn one, you know, you, that they don't really even know what's going on, yeah. you know, that, that, you know, but, but once they're two or three, you know, they, they start to get excited, know what's going on and, and get to feel special and excited for that. And, you know, as a kid growing up, I remember being excited about birthdays, you know, you know, what, you know, getting to do the birthday party, getting presents, but man, as, as an adult with children, right, getting to throw a birthday party for your for your child and make them feel special and get to see them get excited over what gifts they're going to open and get that is a hundred times better to me than having a birthday party for myself. Um, one one of my girls' birthdays only three days before mine, and I was super excited for her birthday. I was like, yeah, I don't really, you know, my birthday doesn't really compare to to having her right. birthday, nope. so. I had my, my oldest son was born on my birthday. So I understand that entirely. So, um, so let me ask you this, cause I, I want to dive into this then a little bit. You mentioned that paper by Fred Collier, who was a very prominent LeBaronite and that makes a real impression on you, right? Mm -hmm. so do you reach out to Fred? I mean, what, what, what's your next steps? So some of the people that were on the forum were students and family of Fred Collier. And sometimes there was a brief period of time where he got on a family member's account and he was actively participating in these discussions, kind of writing up very, very lengthy um, comments, kind of almost, you know, like letters when he would write, just going into history and doctrine. I was I was very appreciative of this. I was still, you know, very much in the church. I, I was seeing some of the issue, you know, I was learning more about early Mormonism and how much the church, you know, had, had has, has fundamentally, you know, forgotten about. But I, I was still very much convinced. I was like, I've had great spiritual experiences in the church. I still am faithful to the church. And I know that the early brethren said X, Y, and Z could affect the church's authority and standing before God, but I still feel strongly, you know, that I, uh, you know, I love the church and I, I, I still, you know, love my association here. And so I, I, I was growing to realize that the church was starting to get out of order, but I wasn't, you know, actively looking for a different authority line at that point or a different group or, or claim. Um, one thing that, you know, I, so I was like, the church is a little bit out of order was kind of how I started going, started looking at things when I was we in the discussion. all start out by saying the church is just a little out of order, right? It, it, just that one plural marriage thing. And then it snowballs from there. So, so the thing that made me realize that the church is seriously out of order, like, like there has been some serious things lost was, um, you know, we talk about the importance of family. Well, one of the principles that was introduced as part of the higher organization of the, the kingdom of God was the principle of the saints becoming an extended family and um, actually becoming an adoptive family, in fact. And that was the principle known as the law of adoption. And I was learning about this principle in these forums because there were different 
you know, groups that taught and understand this principle. Um, but it was ironically, it was through a mainstream Latter-day Saint friend that I came to realize that the church dropping the law of adoption was like a serious problem. So the the, the funny thing is I had I'd grown up with the well, from my cursory study of the law of adoption, I thought it was just a temporary thing introduced in the early days of the church because so many of the saints were without family because of either death or um, you know, being recent converts. And so this was like a temporary measure to get the saints to, you know, be more united and to have a family when they didn't have a family. And so, you know, th this was kind of during the early period of the church, but then the church grew and there were multi-generations in the church. And so therefore, you know, if your whole family's in the church, you don't really need to be adopted anymore. You know, you don't really need an adoptive family is kind of how I initially understood the law of adoption. But what this, this friend pointed out was because I said it was just a temporary thing. He goes, oh no, it wasn't. Look at, you know, you know, Wilford Woodruff wasn't doing away with it because it was just a temporary thing. He's, he pointed out the April 1894 general conference where um, church leaders decided to do away with the law of adoption. And Wilford Woodruff basically said, we don't really understand it and we still don't understand it. And so we should just leave it be as it is and just you know, do this other thing instead, which is seal your family line back as far as you can get the genealogical records. And then he said, seal the last one to Joseph Smith as the head of the dispensation. Um, and, you know, and but he basically said, we don't understand it. We still don't understand it. And so unless someone gets a direct revelation from God telling them to do this principle, then it shouldn't be done anymore. And I was like, ooh, that, and it really hit home realizing that this was the way temple ordinances were done for the first, um, you know, 50 years of the church from, you know, 1845 in the Nauvoo temple all the way up to 1894. You know, the saints were taught, you know, the, the, when I actually was learning what the full doctrine was, uh, you know, after this friend pointed out that I really didn't have a full understanding of it, um, you know, that really if, you know, your family don't accept the fullness of the gospel that you should find a father and mother in the fullness of the gospel to teach you those higher principles that how to become like God. And, you know, so like a lot of the saints considered like Joseph Smith to be a father to them, like an adoptive father, like Lyman White referenced Joseph Smith was being like a father to him. Um, you know, George Q. Cannon's parents uh, sadly didn't accept the gospel. And so George Q. Cannon, his uncle, John Taylor, he was an apostle in the church and he chose to make adoption covenants with John Taylor in the Nauvoo temple. And so this was a big thing in early Mormonism. It was about kind of, it was about the establishing the celestial family here on earth. Um, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, get the saints into a celestial family order where, you know, we don't think that everyone is going to inherit the celestial kingdom, right? We, we think that, you know, the, According to Jesus, it's narrow, you know, it's a narrow path to get there. It, it, well, it's a broad gate to, um, you know, go to the deaths and destruction. Um, so why would we expect to that everyone is going to go to the celestial kingdom? But it does make sense to, you know, that your people you're close to in the fullness of the gospel are probably going to go to the celestial kingdom. And so this was the context in which, you know, the sealing principles were introduced. And so um, an example of this is like, so Benjamin F. Johnson's mother um, and father kind of separated because he, 
he he had um you know he had some issues real, with the church. He didn't real real quick Sorry. before you go there. There's going to be some folks who don't know who Benjamin F. Johnson is and how he ties into the LeBaron line. Can you just explain about who he is real quick? So he was an early Latter Day Saint, and I would say he was one of the closest individuals to Joseph Smith during the last years of his life in Nauvoo, besides say Joseph Scribes. I think William Clayton and Willard Richards were probably the closest to Joseph because they were following him around constantly and recording what he was doing and teaching. Um, but Benjamin F. Johnson was like a little brother to Joseph Smith. And so I'm not really ready to go into Benjamin F. Johnson just now, but basically his mother and father had separated over her convert and the family converting to the church. Everyone converted except him. And so Joseph Smith and Nauvoo encouraged her to be sealed to uncle John Smith um, Joseph Smith's uncle, who, who later became the presiding patriarch of the church, as a plural wife, you know, so that the family could be, you know, so that she could have an eternal marriage and that the family could be kind of tied in to this celestial family idea. And so, you know, I, I realized this is a very important principle. And then the, the understanding of work for the dead was actually kind of different than what the church teaches today. Um, what Brigham Young taught and what was practiced in LDS temples up until 1894 is that you don't seal yourself to the to your dead ancestors who you don't know if they would accept the gospel or not, but you actually adopt them and seal them to yourself. And, and so because and that you are going to be the one who's going to introduce them to the fullness of the gospel and, and you know, teach them, you know, those principles and they still have you first have to learn whether or not they accept those principles. And then they also, you know, whether it, you know, you know, in the, in the resurrection, they're going to have to live those principles in the flesh and see if they actually really want to be striving to be part of the celestial family. So learning that this was fundamentally reversed in 1894 made me realize that LDS temple work after that date has to be, you know, precarious and and questionable in in many senses since because either it was right when joseph smith brigham young and john taylor were doing it or it was wrong and i don't think that joseph smith brigham wilford woodruff would say that if anyone understood the temple ordinances it was brigham young he said brigham young was there with joseph from the beginning to the end of joseph administering temple ordinances and so we should trust his doctrines and he says regarding Wilfred Rudolph also said regarding ceilings and adoptions, he says, I don't know, understand it as much as I would like to, but they have to be true principles or our prophets have been badly deceived. And so I'm like, whoa, that's, you know, pretty significant, you know, and, and I mean, that's a true observation, you know, who, regardless of whoever said that, you know, um, e either the prophets taught true principles or they didn't. Right. Um, and, and and so this, you know, started me to realize, you know, the church is significantly out of order, but I, I still love the church. I was still planning on, on preparing to serve a mission at that time until, you know, I had a spiritual experience that basically led me to understand that the church didn't have, um, didn't have priesthood authority anymore. And I, I, I had a series of experiences that kind of prepared me for that, that kind of confirmed, you know, God is good. God can give the gifts of the spirit and can give revelation and can give blessings of healings, you know, any to, to people, even without any priesthood, um, you know, that's, those are the fruits of faith. You know, Jesus 
in the New Testament, and the apostles kind of tell them there's people who are doing these great works in your name, who are casting out devils and, and you know, doing all these other things in your name, but they aren't with us. So shouldn't we go and tell them to stop? And Jesus actually said, no, it, and those who aren't against us are with us, is, is what Jesus said. And, you know, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young expounded on that and teaching that the ability to heal the sick and have other experiences of the spirit aren't ne aren't necessarily priesthood, but you can have those from having the spirit and, and living a godly life and having those fruits that stem from having the, the spirit in your life and trying to do the right thing. And so I, I, I started to, um, you, you know, I, I, you know, that led me to realize that if the church doesn't have authority, I should probably look elsewhere. And I kind of already had a decent idea where to look. I, I enjoyed all the, you know, fundamentalists in general are a really knowledgeable people. I think everyone who is interacting in those group that those forums, regardless of what group they were a part of, they all had very, you know, most of them had very interesting insights and, you know, and they, they really knew their history and the, the apologists and mainstream LDS kind of, you know, took the back seat in discussions most of the time. It was the the fundamentalists who, who were really no, knowledgeable. And I was grateful for this because one thing I, I've always felt in life is that the best, one of the best ways to learn is to find somebody who, who already is knowledgeable in an area and to study under them and to learn from them, you know, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, you know, learning from those who've already put in a lot of time, a lot of effort into understanding Mormon history and, and Mormon doctrine. And the people that I really felt stood out in these discussions were people who were of the Ross LeBaron line, who were their vast knowledges and very astute historians, you know, and, and this is not one or two people. It was a lot. There, there was quite a number of people who were sharing research files they compiled and um, noting, you know, you know, showing their work, you know, tons of right. sources. And I was, I was deeply impressed with that. And, and so that's kind of um, what stood out to me. You know, what's, what's kind of ironic about that is without that forum and the contents that were shared in it, like this, you know, deep theology and deep history, if I was just going off of what, what is easily available on a Google search, what is available online, the stuff about Ross and the stuff about some of his followers that would come up in Google searches would have probably made them be the last place I would have looked for, for, for priesthood because, um, you know, you know the, some of the stuff out there is just very wild. And, you know, I, I now know in retrospect that most of it is vast, you know, is, is very untrue. That's what, what's available online. Um, but it, but it was these interactions and studies that made me feel that all of these, other objections that came up were kind of surface level and that even some members in the discussions would you know, use strong personal attacks or or make accusations to you know to try to one up the individual who was really knowledgeable with the history and for me the doctrine and historical knowledge was so compelling that i personally just had to dismiss personal attacks I mean, if you are attempting to attack a person instead of what they're saying, I feel like you're not coming from a stronger position 
And so why would I accept, you know, a weaker doctoral position just because you have, you know, what you seem to have some mud you can throw is kind of, does that kind of make sense? I'm, I'm like, right. Yeah, you know, no, it, it does. It does. You principles, were principles over personality. You were taking the substance, substance of the, the, the argument over the, the personality of the individual. Yeah. And you really can't. You know, this really brings to mind a, a statement Brigham Young said, because Brigham Young said that when he joined the, the the church in the early 1830s, that an old minister just absolutely um, just railed against Joseph Smith with all the different accusations in the book. Uh, and this is one of my favorite quotes by Brigham Young. Um, and he tells the story several times throughout his life. So I think it's a story he likes to share also. He said, I recollect the conversation I had with a priest who was an old friend of ours before I was personally acquainted with the prophet Joseph. I clipped every argument he advanced until at last he came out and began to rail against Joe Smith, that he was a mean man, a liar, a money digger, a gambler, a whore master. He charged him with everything bad that he could find language to utter. I said, hold on, brother Gilmore. Here is the doctrine. Here is the Bible, the book of Mormon and the revelations that have come through Joseph Smith, the prophet. I've never seen him and do not know his private character. The doctrine he teaches is all I know about the matter. Bring anything against that if you can. As to anything else, I do not care. If he acts like a devil, he's brought forth a doctrine that will save us if he will abide it. Um, he, he said he may get drunk every night. He may sleep with his neighbor's wife, run horses and gamble. I do not care anything about all those things, for I never embrace any man in my faith. But the doctrine he's produced will save you and me and the whole world. And if you can find fault with that, find it. And he said, I have done. And it kind of silenced this mister. And obviously this isn't saying that a person's moral character isn't important. Brigham Young would say that Joseph Smith was the best man who'd ever lived, save Jesus. And, and he lauded Joseph Smith's character. But the point is you don't really know a person just based off of what other people are saying about them over the rumor mill and and gossip chain that can be spread around and so you really got to be careful putting a whole lot of weight on those things rather than you know weighing somebody by their own words and their own actions as you know them you know as jesus said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh so you really should you know hear people out for their own perspective rather than um just dismissing someone based off of what others tell you if that makes sense yeah, yeah no i i i think that I'm always a big proponent of, of going to the individual. Now, having said that, let's, uh, let's be clear that just because someone has good doctrine or what we perceive to be good doctrine doesn't make them a great guy. Um, I think someone can be disqualified based on their actions. Warren Jeffs comes to mind, right? I mean, look, he, he could preach all day long from, from Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or whatever, but his actions tell me that the man's uh, a sadistic. Well, when when you look at his doctrines, highest you, order, it, it, right? And so, if yeah. he can't abide his own doctrine, you 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 at least have to start questioning some things now. Now, what you choose to take with and what you choose to leave behind, that's that's a personal decision. Hopefully, one based on revelation. But I, I think we do have to take into account character somewhat. I absolutely think character is important. Um, I, th I think the big thing is that we should, you know, obviously avoid, you know, trusting sure. in, 
you know, you know, rumors that you aren't sure if there's anything substantial behind them or not. Sure. Um, because lots of rumors, are, you know, when you read the anti-Mormon literature about Joseph Smith, if you were trying to say you were in the 1830s and you're reading Mormonism unveiled, you know, are you, would it be really wise to take that over going and carefully examining, you know, Joseph Smith's character for, for yourself? I, you know, I think it's a lot more important to get it from the horse's mouth. Yeah. I and, do. you know, I think that's, and I don't, I, I would push back a little bit because I really think that Joseph Smith said that good doctrine flows from, from good people. And that, and I think the inverse is true that, that bad people will tend to have corrupt doctrines, if that right. makes sense. Yep. And Warren Dreff's, his doctrines were very corrupt. And, you yep. know, when you read his revelations, they are bizarre to say the best of, the, of, of it. You know, he, he taught yeah. some very convoluted doctrines that have ultimately destroyed what, you know, what was the biggest fundamentalist group at one point because he went, you know, because of his bad, bad doctrines that he's taught, you know, the, you know, going from the, the infallibility to, telling his people that they shouldn't have children anymore right? Know, just because the prophet told them to not have children. Um, you know, it's, right. it's just absolutely fragmented his, his, his group and that, that community. And I think that a lot of innocent people were hurt because of a bad doctrine, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. So, so you know, I, I reached out to I, I reached out to to Fred eventually and I, I got to interact with him and, and study with him. And I, you know, eventually I ended up actually living in his home for about six months when I was dealing with kind of I, I was only 20 at the time still. Um, I think just about when I turned 21 and because I, I was having some rocky family relationships sure. over me becoming a fundamentalist and my parents kind of said, you know, we we have issues with your faith position, and so we need some distance. Is kind of the attitude that that right. occurred. But but Fred Fred was very gracious to let me, um, you know, to, to to live in his home, and I got to sleep in the the loft above his office, and and I got access to his his wealth of knowledge on doctrine and in history, and you know, I would kind of sleep in the in the loft you know, stay up very late in the night studying early Mormon teachings and history. And then I would wake up in the morning to, he would be working in his office. And I'd get to go down and, and discuss whatever historical or, or theological, um, you know, issues he's, he's, he's working on at the moment. He was very, always busy writing things, always busy. He, he'd published over 40 different pamphlets on doctrine and, and principles that are very substantial substantiative in my opinion he also written i think at least about 10 books you know thick books on, on you know obviously the most um the, the one most people know about is unpublished revelations um right. volume one and volume two which is just a great collection of things that didn't end up canonized but are still very significant revelations nonetheless and so the big thing that got me into this was um the the love of mormon history and so i really wanted to learn everything I could about Mormon history and doctrine as I got involved with this, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the broader LeBaron movement and the, you know, Ross, Ross LeBaronism as a theological position. And so in 2016, one thing that 
really significant happened that the church did was they released the long anticipated council of 50 minutes. There, there were kind of rumors of, you know, in the months before that there were going to be some significant things in the council of 50 minutes. You know, and this is what we've been, you know, historians have been waiting on for decades for the church to let us know what was going on in the council of 50. And the council of 50 is very significant to Liberanism because um, Benjamin F. Johnson was a member of the Council of 50 and he wrote things about the Council of 50. And so it'd be great to learn what was actually recorded in the Council of 50 meetings themselves. And so in 2016, the church um, released the Council of 50 minutes. And, you know, to my surprise, there weren't a whole lot of um, Liberanites who were very invested in reading these you know I, I thought this would be you know this was a very significant thing but there weren't a whole lot of people who, who were that interested but so i kind of took it upon myself to study the minutes because somebody has to find out what's in the council of 50 minutes um what what do you so, think caused what, what do you think caused the apathy towards uh, towards those being released so i think part of it is a lot of people you know, a lot of these are great historians who are just, you know, older guys who have already kind of done, you know, okay. their historical work. You know, they they spent years and decades researching and, and they weren't as invested in it at that point. Like they, they've reached their doctoral conclusions, their historical conclusions. And, and you know, they're, they're more looking to share what they've already gotcha. gathered with with others rather than, um, you know, going into you know, getting into what's new. But me, I like the Joseph Smith statement where he said, it's always been my province to dig up new things, hidden mysteries for my hearers. And so I was like, heck yeah, let's get what's new. And so I, I took a significant interest in it. And not only did I take a significant interest, but I was lucky enough to get the minutes a few weeks before they were actually officially released. For some reason, luck, you know, I pre-ordered it from Amazon and Amazon sent it out to me a couple of weeks early. And so I was probably one of the first historians outside of, you know, the church historians who had worked with the minutes to get to look at the Council of 50 Minutes and, and read through them. And um, it was it, it, it really kind of was a spark for me where it kind of started me into a, a love of Mormon history and, and really getting to um, understand more about what Joseph Smith taught, what Brigham Young taught, what they did and what they tried to establish um, but there, there, what's what was interesting to liberalism is there were some issues that the Council of Fifty Minutes raised. When you get new sources, you got to figure out how to, you know, how do these fit with our preconceived beliefs and ideas. And so, I was kind of given a heads up a few months before the minutes actually came up. There seems to be a Joseph Smith statement that indicates the Council of Fifty wasn't a priesthood body. I was I was like okay that's that's kind of interesting I'll have to read that statement because with liberalism and this is something that other historians have kind of gathered is that it was intended to be kind of a priesthood body in some degree that was intended to wield some degree of priesthood authority and so that was an issue that I wanted to read about when I got the minutes and then the other issue that came up and the, and this was kind of said this was more of a, a plus for the um LeBaron side of things is they said they're actually it. The last charge isn't recorded. And, and the last charge being the, the in Mormon history, the last charge is where Joseph Smith gives a speech shortly before his death, reviewing his life and labors. And, you know, essentially says 
I'm placing the authority on you to lead the church and kingdom of God triumphant to the world. And in traditional Mormon his circles, we've only we've always thought it was just to the 12 apostles. But to the LeBaron tradition, it's always been that actually it was the 12 apostles and the Council of 50, that it wasn't just 12 guys being told to carry out Joseph's measures, but that actually it was entire body of 40 to 50 men who were being told to, to keep alive what Joseph had get sacrificed his life to establish. Real, um, real quick then, but but let me push back on that. How could it be a priesthood council when you have men on there who aren't even Mormon? I mean, forget priesthood quorum. I mean, for, for, forget priesthood period, but not Mormon at all. I'm glad to have you push back on that. Um, there were Gentiles initiated into the Council of 50, but it, you know, non-Mormons who were, you know, there are three non-Mormons, but they were not seen as the source of the council's authority. The, the council's authority was stemmed from the priesthood. And you can kind of see that in a 18, in a 18, it's either 1842 or 1844 revelation that Joseph Smith received, which was written in the council of 50 minutes, giving the, the full name of the body. It said, you know, thus saith the Lord, this is the name by which you shall be called the kingdom of God and his laws with the keys and powers thereof and judgment in the hands of his servants. Amen, Christ. So it's mentioning the kingdom of God holding keys and power, uh, you know, that, and, and when you actually look at the sources of the time period, that was understood to be priesthood authority and that it was by virtue of the priesthood authority that Joseph Smith and the other brethren held that they were authorized to set up the literal kingdom of God. Now, why were there Gentiles in it? Um, I would say, well, I would say what Joseph Smith said, Joseph Smith said that he included non-Mormons in the council of 50 to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was founded upon the principle of religious freedom, that God, that God would not infringe on any man's rights and neither would the kingdom of God, but that it would actually protect everyone in their rights, regardless of their religious faith. And so it was important to symbolically have non-Mormons be members of that council to represent that God would protect the rights of everyone and not just the Latter-day Saints. And that, and Joseph Smith said, and this demonstrates that I am not a religious bigot, that I that I love a man regardless of his religious faith. And I think Joseph Smith said he'd be just as willing to die for a good Catholic man as he would for a Mormon. So, mm -hmm. you know, but I think it was about demonstrating that the, you know, that, that everyone should have representation. Right. And um, Benjamin F. Johnson actually recalled that it was taught that ideally when the kingdom of God grows to fill the whole earth, it would have members from every principality, tribe and people on the earth. You know, because it is important to have representation. And and that's why Joseph Smith didn't just say theocracy. He said theodemocracy, where it's both you're getting both the voice of God and the voice of the people. And you're trying to have a harmonization where they're working together, where God and the people come together on issues hmm. rather than a, a tyranny, you know, as, as traditional theocracies were understood to be. Does that make sense? I guess. I guess I'm a little unsure about this idea of just having the token non-member on the council for appearances sakes um joseph doesn't strike me as that kind of guy right joseph was interested in people who 
kind of hold their own, right? Um, and this idea that you're just having someone on there as a placeholder and almost a quasi weird religious affirmative action sort of theory strikes me well, as little, strikes me well as what, what do you think the non-mormons um what do you think the non-mormons were doing in the council of 50 honestly i think joseph brought them in because they obviously had something to contribute right i, I think that's true too I I think, I think I don't think Joseph's just like I don't care. Get me whatever Gentile. Give me a token Gentile to have in here. I think Joseph was practical enough to say, "Give me somebody who can 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 get things done as well." And so, it, it, as you look at the names of who were on the Council of Fifty, and forgive me, I don't have a list right here, but I remember reading it. They weren't always the guys you would think about, but they were the guys who got crap done. Right. Yeah. So as, I think that's important. As I, I think as he looked around, I don't think he was doing it again in some weird religious affirmative action sort of sense. I think he was honestly looking at at this from a truly cooperative point of view. Right. Like not everyone's going to be a Mormon. Right. And And we certainly know that Brigham had said certain things like when Zion's established, there will be, you know, protestants and there'll be all sorts of people there right in the not not zion the millennium and so i i think joseph was like we're gonna have to live with these folks um give me a good man from outside the church who can get things done that's the way i see it yep i i agree with that and i think that these were resourceful guys i, I don't think it's right to characterize them as a, a token gentile affirmative action you know i think these were so like uriah brown for example he had invented a kind of a, a prototype uh flamethrower that was supposed to be like a a a, a brilliant it, i don't know if this weapon actually ever materialized but he said he had a weapon that would basically douse an entire army in fire um some sort okay. of liquid I'm not fire invention that he had come up with i'm and not so that would totally get me to bring that guy on i'd be like yes you can be on the council but you gotta bring <laughs> that flamethrower too we're gonna we're gonna try that out so. <laughs> yeah that, yeah so i think i think these were resourceful guys but i do think that when when there began you know after joseph smith's death when brigham young reconvened the council of 50 all the non-mormons were dropped and they you know i i believe that i think part of that had to do with emphasizing the fact that we you know that there were tensions between mormons and non-mormons in nauvoo and you know emphasize you know that kind of made it be a lot more purely priesthood and less temporal in those you know well in, in a lot of the subjects they covered Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I trust your history more than I trust my recollection here. Um, they didn't reorganize the Council of Fifty till they got to Utah, right? Nope. They they actually reorganized it in March of 1850. I mean, not 1845. Sorry, a year after, less than a year after Joseph Smith's death, okay. they reconvened the council, and the council was actually. This is one thing that I found very interesting in, in the Council of Fifty minutes is that they were dealing with all the affairs of the church and they were discussing where is the gathering place going to be? And they were discussing, what are we going to do? Are we going to complete the temple or not? And the council votes, yes, we're going to complete the temple. Um, they're discussing, what are we going to do with our properties when we leave Nauvoo? And they kind of, the council appoints 
people to, you know, deal with the properties of the church. And they were very active in all sorts of, um, you know, church-related matters. And part of the reason the Council of 50, I think, reconvened in March of 1845 is because the Nauvoo state legislature had um, had repealed the Nauvoo Charter. And so they were not their own legal government anymore. And so they said, well, we got our own government that doesn't rely on the authority of um, the state, but comes gets its authority from God. And so the, you know, that's when the council of 50 was very active from, you know, March of 1845, or actually Feb it started kind of in February of 1845, all the way up to the Exodus um, in February of 1846. And that's actually, that's what one thing that surprised me about the council of 50 minutes is that the majority of the church only released the Nauvoo period minutes but the majority of them were written after Joseph Smith's lifetime. The minutes that were recorded in Joseph Smith's lifetime were unfortunately very brief, very minimal. Um, you know, William Clayton must have been pretty guarded and, and um, you know, must have been concerned about secrecy is why he probably didn't keep a whole lot of minutes in the not in the in in the 1844 minutes, but then in 1845, you're getting very detailed minutes about these meetings. So what's fascinating. So I read, you know, there's a statement by Joseph Smith that, you know, it's, it's, that's considered to indicate the council of 50 was just a political body. I'm going to read that just to give what the statement is. He said, there's a distinction between the church of God and the kingdom of God. The laws of the kingdom are not designed to affect our salvation hereafter is an entire distinct and separate government. The church is a spiritual matter in a spiritual kingdom, but the kingdom which Daniel saw was not a spiritual kingdom, but was designed to be got up for the safety and salvation of the saints by protecting them in their religious rites and worship. Anything that would tolerate man in the worship of his God under his own vine and fig tree would be, be tolerated of God. The literal kingdom of God and the church of God are two distinct things. The gifts of prophets, evangelists, etc. never were designed to govern men in civil matters. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with giving commandments to damn a man spiritually. It only had power to make a man amenable to his fellow man. God gave commandments that if a man killed, etc., he should be killed himself, but it did not damn it. And so it seems to be Joseph saying the key thing is the kingdom which Daniel saw was not a spiritual kingdom, but was designed to be got up for the safety and salvation of the saints. And then he says the gifts of prophets, evangelists, etc., were not designed to govern men in civil matters. And so those things seem to at least at a surface reading of it, seemed to indicate that this was a set completely distinct thing from the priesthood, right? That's kind of the, the straightforward reading of that statement. But then you get into 1845, and Brigham Young makes this comment. He said, with regards to this kingdom, it is the 50 that governs and controls all the affairs pertaining to it. When Joseph Smith was living, it was Joseph and his council that governed the affairs of the whole church. And now it's the 12 which governs, and I don't suppose that any other body could counteract their influence amongst this people. This 50 will be the governing and controlling body of this kingdom, even if we call in 10,000 men into this council. I will defy any man to draw the line between the spiritual and temporal affairs in the kingdom of God. Every man that is in this organization has to do with everything between earth and heaven or hell. So he seems to you know, when I point that out to a friend who's big on the kingdom of the Council of 50 was just a political body, he says, 
well, Brigham Young just appears to be contradicting Joseph Smith. It's kind of how he interpreted it. But I, I would personally say we got to be cautious thinking that Brigham Young didn't understand what Joseph Smith was teaching and doing and, and didn't understand the organizations that Joseph Smith was establishing. So there's another statement that stood out when I was, you know, one of the first people to read the minutes. And that was this ex explanation of the Council of 50 given by Heber C. Kimball to new members of the body being added to it. He said, this council is a place designed as a place of trial for each one admitted. And if we are found faithful in this council, the time will come when each one will be anointed and ordained priests and kings. In the resurrection, each one of these kings will appear from their respective kingdoms from time to time to make reports of matters in their kingdoms to the king of kings and will receive instructions to carry to their respective kingdoms from him. Joseph Smith is the king of kings to this kingdom, but he is now gone within the veil and President Young takes his place. If a man steps beyond his bounds, he will lose his kingdom as Lucifer did and will be given to others who are more worthy. Brother Emmett and transcended his bounds and he lost his kingly authority and is no more a member with us. And so it has been with Lyman White and others. And these brethren come in and take their crowns. And he said, these people called are being called to do the most important work in the in on earth. Is kind of what he says. So that's, you know, seems to be a very strong connecting this to not only priesthood authority, but the highest priesthood authority of, of priests and kings, right? So, you know, I because I don't think that Brigham Young and, and Heber C. Kimball misunderstood what Joseph Smith was teaching, I go back to that Joseph Smith statement. And in context, the way I personally look at it is that that Joseph was talking about Daniel chapter two and chapter seven, where it talks about this kingdom would, you know, would break into pieces and consume kind of the kingdoms of this world and good Bible commentaries on Daniel on these chapters in Daniel will say that this is a government that's, you know, carrying, you know, that that's consuming and swallowing up other governments. And so I don't think so. Joseph was teaching that there was both a temporal and spiritual aspect of the kingdom of Daniel. Um, he would often call the spiritual aspect of it, the order of pertaining to the ancient of days. And he basically said, that's everyone being given priestly authority going all extending back to father Adam. And so I see that what Joseph Smith is saying here is that the unique purpose of the council of 50 is to exercise. Uh, so, you know, to to temporarily protect the saints in their rights and to establish a government that will, you know, execute the law of God. He makes a comment in here where he says the gifts of prophets, evangelists, etc., never were designed to govern men in civil matters. But Joseph Smith did indicate in other statements that there was a degree of priesthood that did have authority, that did have temporal governing authority. He said those holding the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood are kings and priests of the Most High God, holding the keys of power and blessing. And he goes on, he says, that priesthood is a perfect law of theocracy. So he's saying that the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood had the authority to execute a theocracy according to the law of God. And then in another statement, in February of 1844, he said, I want every man that goes on an expedition west to be a king and a priest. When he gets on the mountain, he may want to talk with his God when with the savage nations have power to govern. So Joseph thought that kings and priests had legitimate governing power and that 
and this the connection between the Council of Fifty and kings and priests becomes even more clear when you understand that Joseph Smith was giving second anointings to his closest followers from from September 1843 to February of 1844. Twenty men and their wives received that or that ordinance to get the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood, and then. Only a few weeks later, in March of 1844, he begins to organize these men who have the fullness of the priesthood into the Council of Fifty, but also with other members of the church. Obviously, it's a Council of Fifty, so there's going to be more than just, say, the 20 men who had received their second anointings. I think every man he gave the second anointing to, except um, there was one man, I believe, who was pretty old. He wasn't inducted into the Council of Fifty by Joseph Smith, so it might have been because he was um you know too old to really have an active participation in you know the theodemocratic you know theodemocracy and the government of the kingdom so so yeah i see joseph smith as emphasizing that the unique role of the council of 50 even though you guys there are statements in the minutes where they're say recognizing that the council of 50 has priesthood authority he's saying that the unique role is to execute a temporal government and that and to not be as involved with spiritual matters, if that makes sense. Sure. Now, let me ask you this. How was Joseph, how was Joseph figuring this was going to operate, right? Because it's one thing to operate this uh, in Utah, right? During that time period, there's no one else here, right? It's another thing to do it in a place that already had constitutional law. So mm-hmm. how did he see that functioning within Illinois? Well, I feel like he knew that it wouldn't functionally work in Illinois. And so that's why one of the primary things with the Council of 50 was wanting to send out new settle, start new settlements. Um, the letters that sparked Joseph Smith to say that the spirit is revealed, it's time to organize the kingdom, were letters received by Lyman White and George Miller, who were up in Wisconsin getting lumber for the temple. And they kind of said, we think there should probably probably be a second gathering place for the church based, you know, probably in the South for people who are more politically and socially, you know, of that, of that region, you know, and aren't as used to the harsher climates of the North. And they said, Texas seems like it would be a great place for a new gathering place. And Joseph Smith was like, I perceive they have the spirit of God in the pineries and we should begin to organize the kingdom by organizing some of its officers. And so the big thing, one of the big things discussed in the Council of 50 is where are we going to go so that we can settle without being infringed upon by, you know, by, you know, other states or the American government? Because they were constantly, even though Illinois was a relatively peaceful time in the history of the church, they were still facing extradition threats from Missouri and political problems with the Illinois legislature. You know, there were threats of wanting to repeal this, the, the, the Nauvoo charter, which the Nauvoo charter is what gave the saints their rights and their liberties for, and gave them peace for about, you know, four years in the last four years of Joseph Smith's life. Um, and so they were looking to either Texas and Joseph Smith actually kind of admitted, I'm not too fond on Texas, but Lyman white wants to go. And so I figure if he wants to try to start a gathering there that, you know, he should be, you know, that he should do that. Real, real um, quick, but, before you finish your thought, and then I want to get the rest of that. Texas and, and the Mormons have quite a history, actually. Um, Sam Houston was a contemporary 
of Joseph Smith and actually offered him the ground that would become Houston. I mean, so he was saying that Texas and the church have, have, uh, have always flirted, so to speak, which I found interesting and fascinating. Yep. So, so the council was not entirely throwing away being a part of the United States because Joseph Smith, you know, a month earlier had announced his candidacy for president of the United States. He figured we might as well try to reform this government to be, you know, to protect our rights. And, you know, and so he was running for president and the council of 50 discussed, you know, the electioneering campaigns who missionaries were being sent out to both preach the gospel and stump campaign for Joseph Smith's candidacy. And he had hundreds of men who were sent out doing this. And it, you know, some sources say that this actually scared the political establishment of his day, that, you know, nobody had the influence that Joseph Smith did to be able to have hundreds of men on a moment's notice be willing to go out and, and serve missions to preach his political candidacy. Um, and so the council was involved with Joseph's political campaign, which was ideal, you know, to and, you know, to try to get the government to be more favorable to protecting the Mormons' rights. But also it was falling back on this idea of we need to have a new settlement out west, outside of the bounds of the United States at that time. And so they were looking at Texas. They were also looking at the Oregon Territory, which Oregon Territory at that time was not just the little state of Oregon, but it was like extended, you know, up to Washington, all the way out to, uh, I think, parts of California, all the way out to Utah. And so there actually is a statement in February of 1844 where Joseph Smith says, is talking with the 12 apostles about, um, you know, we're looking for a gather, you know, for a place where we, we can have peace and safety in the Rocky Mountains. So that was in Joseph Smith's lifetime. He was considering the Rocky Mountains in a, that's written in his contemporary journal. So that was a big issue, but I do think that the priesthood connection shouldn't be understated in that we, you know, part of the reason we have the priesthood connection is because uh, there are a number of sources that indicate that Joseph Smith's last charge to bear off the church and kingdom of God to all the world was to the Council of 50 and not just to the the apostles. Most people are familiar with Benjamin F. Johnson's accounts, but um, there's other accounts that, that, you know, there's other firsthand, second and secondhand, and, and also some illusion accounts that are possibly thirdhand, um, kind of tying the Council of 50 to um, you know, this last charge meeting where Joseph Smith is saying that you guys need to carry out the work that I've started for, I, I'm, I'm going to rest for a while. And Wilford Woodruff said that they didn't understand it at the time that Joseph was expecting to die. You know, even though in retrospect, we're like, oh yeah, he, he knew he was going to die. Um, but at the time they thought he was just like, I'm going to be taking a break. You guys need to carry on the work that I'm starting, you know? Um, and so it's very fascinating. The last charge isn't included in the Council of 50 Minutes themselves, but there is a discussion about the last charge a year later in March of 1845. And Orson Hyde had written a nice long certificate about the 12 apostles receiving their authority through a holy anointing and also being charged to bear off the kingdom. And they he read it to the Council of 50, and he wanted as many who were present to on this occasion to sign it as witnesses is what the minutes record he said. And so then there's some discussion about the certificate that Orson Hyde wrote, 
But then there, Brigham Young kind of shuts down the discussion with this very interesting comment. He said, it writes, he wants Elder Hyde to write his farewell to Rigdonism and let the Twelve alone. He don't care whether the world knows the authority and power of the Twelve or not. When the time comes, they shall feel our power, and we shall not try to prove it to them. In regard to Joseph's remarks, he did not mention anything about the anointing. He said it was this Council of Fifty which had to bear the responsibility of establishing the kingdom in all the world. So there's a very point-blank Brigham Young statement saying that the, the, the meeting that Orson Hyde's recalling, that Joseph didn't mention the anointing that the apostles had received at that meeting, but he did say that it was this Council of Fifty who was to, be, who was to bear the responsibility of establishing the kingdom in all of the world. And so, you know, this is a very significant statement, and it actually begs questions like, what do you mean he didn't mention the anointing? So what was the significance of the last charge? If Joseph, if Joseph didn't mention the, uh, the anointing, you know, does that, was there an anointing, first of all? And second of all, what? Can't get enough of the Mormon Renegade podcast? Well, good news. We're on Patreon, and there's three packages that you can choose from. The first one, the Slightly Rowdy Package, allows you to hear the podcast without all those pesky commercials getting in the way. For those who want a slightly more in-depth experience, there's the Stirring It Up Package, where you can hear ad-free audio, ad-free video, and transcripts. Finally, for those who want to go full Renegade, that package is available too, where you can get everything in the previous two packages, plus an extra show where myself and Ben Winfield break down the news of the day from a very Mormon point of view. You will also get exclusive access to Renegade Chat, and on there you'll be able to talk to others about the show or whatever topics are on your mind. Go to Patreon today and get your exclusive content. What authority, What did Joseph Smith mean when he said they had the responsibility of establishing the kingdom in all of the world? And so I started to kind of gather um, historical sources on the subject of, you know, compiling dozens of, of accounts of the last charge. And what kind of even provoked me even more to basically say, I need to write a paper on this subject, was there was a, a paper by John Dinger in 2017 called The Council of Fifty, Orson Hyde, and the Last Charge, a Reevaluation. And in this paper, John Dinger tries to argue there wasn't even a significant last charge. He says, based off of the Council of Fifty Minutes, Based off of the fact that Brigham Young didn't want the certificate to be published, I don't think that there was a significant last charge. And the other thing he points out, Dinger does in this article, is that William Clayton's journal in July of 1844, when they're discussing succession after Joseph Smith's death, they're discussing whether the, um, you, you know, who, who's going to be the president of the church. And William Clayton records in his journal that, Joseph said that if he and Hiram were killed, that Samuel Smith would, would take his place. And they're also discussing, um, some people are suggesting, could William Marks be the head of the church? And um, they're initially, some of the members of the anointed quorum are kind of favorable to that. And William Clayton then records that um, Newell K. Whitney takes him aside and says, hey, William Marks can't be the successor and the trustee and trust over the church. He, because he is not favorable in the most important matters, and he will destroy our spiritual blessings. And that's referencing the fact that William Marks had turned apostate 
to the temple ordinances, to the doctrine of plural marriage. And so somebody who's apostate on all of these principles Joseph was restoring would definitely not be the head of the church, right? You know, right. you couldn't. I've heard some people try to say Sidney Rigdon, as a surviving member of the First Presidency, had the best claim to being the the, the next president of the church. But Rigdon was, he was, first of all, not mentally all there. He had some no. mental issues. And second of all, he had not been faithful to all these newer principles that Joseph was restoring. Like, um, you know, he was being buddies with John C. Bennett, and he was against plural marriage. So Sidney Rigdon is a no-go with when it came to succession. But what John Dinger pointed out in this paper was that they there he said if Joseph had appointed the 12 to be the head of the church in his lifetime, then why isn't that mentioned in William Clayton's journal? And a friend of mine who I really respect and was kind of who taught me a lot about Mormon history, he to my shock was kind of influenced by Dinger. He's like, whoa, this was a pretty compelling paper. And I'm like, are you telling me that all the apostles and all these other people who gave accounts of the last charge were lying about it? I really don't think that, you know, I, you know, and so that kind of compelled me to start to write my own paper on the council of 50 and the last charge. And for me, I wasn't, I didn't find John Dinger's arguments too persuasive because I long believed that the, you know, what Joseph was doing at the last charge wasn't appointing his successor but he was just telling the priesthood brethren that he had taught all the higher principles of the kingdom, that they needed to keep these principles alive and make sure that they continue no matter what. You know, I think that was the big thing that was going on at the last charge. So, of course, it wouldn't come up in the succession discussions in July of 1844. And, you know, Brigham Young obviously wouldn't want it, it to be used as the basis for the 12s authority claims if it wasn't really the main or you know the full picture of the 12s authority claims if that makes sense so i started collecting other things on the council of 50 being considered a priesthood body i found out that alpheus cutler was teaching his followers that it was a priesthood body lyman white was teaching his followers that it was a priesthood body peter hawes as a member of the 50 was teach was arguing this and james whitehead as a member of the rlds church was saying that the Council of 50 was kind of this highest priesthood body and that there were even people who rejected um, Nauvoo Mormonism and believed Joseph Smith was a fallen prophet um, who the Brewsterites were in their writings were saying that Joseph had ordained a Council of 50, ordained kings and priests holding authority that no tribunal in the church could control. And so I had gathered up all these sources and then like Sidney Rigdon and James Strang had instituted replica. Uh, councils of 50s in their church governments, uh, kingdoms, they, they weren't 50. James String was like, actually, it should be up to 144. And Sidney Rigdon's like, actually, it should be up to 70. Is kind of where 73 was Sidney Rigdon's. But they put it as the head of their church governments. And so um, I'm looking at all these sources and, you know, I'm, I'm compiling them together to show there's a very compelling case that the Council of 50 was considered a, a priesthood body by all the various branches of the restoration after Joseph Smith's death. And um, so that kind of solved one issue for me from, you know, how do, how do I interpret, you know, jo you know, these, the, these, the council of 50 minutes on the council of 50. So then my second question was what was, was there an a holy anointing in connection with the last charge? Because there were a number of sources 
like Orson Hyde's certificate saying that Joseph and Hiram conducted the men through a holy anointing just previous to, um, you know, giving this last charge speech. And then there's also, you know, Ben Jeff Johnson would say that after all was completed and the keys of power committed, then Joseph gave this last charge speech. So I, I started I, kind of. Can I push back on something real quick here? Okay. If, if the council of 50 was that important, why didn't Brigham really push it a lot harder when he got to the Salt Lake Territory, uh, to the Utah Territory? We know that it was reconvened, but he didn't, I, I don't think he made it as, as powerful of an organization as, say, the Quorum of the Twelfth. What was the reasoning behind that? Especially where it was Brigham, and I tend to, to think that Brigham doesn't stray a whole bunch from Joseph. Um, that's a good question. I would say that it was actually a slow shift in um, due to the practicality of the way the council was convened to make any decision binding. They all had to come to a unanimous agreement on any decision. And so practically, it was a lot easier to have the 12, you know, kind of work, you know, as a council, be unanimous on a decision than to, to take every decision to the council of 50. Um, Brigham Young kind of said that if you throw the authority to the um, to the seventies, they can't handle the kingdom, and neither can the fifty. Is kind of what okay. Brigham Young said, and what George A. Smith said. He he said the Council of Fifty was a debating school, was what he said. So he clearly felt that there was way more debate and not as much getting things done. Um, but I do think Brigham Young did, according to the Council of Fifty Minute editors, we don't have the Utah Council of 50 Minutes. But according to the editors in early Utah, the Council of 50 was still actively in, in doing both ecclesiastical and temporal functions in the early Utah period under Brigham Young. And I, I wish we could get a hold of, of those Utah Minutes, but the church, I doubt they'll ever release those. But, um, but basically the council continued to meet until about 1850, 1851. Then so many members of the Council of 50 had been sent out on different um, different um, settlement, ex, you know, pioneer expeditions, you know, going to start new new settlements in different places. That they were so spread out, as Brigham Young is starting to colonize the Rocky Mountains, that he basically, when the council reconvened in 1867, Brigham Young said, "You know, the reason we haven't been able to meet is because it's not been convenient to get a full quorum. You know, you needed at least 25." half of the council to have a legal meeting and he said we just couldn't get a full quorum and that's actually when you look according to the historians who've, who've seen excerpts of the 50 minutes that that stopped meeting in the early 1850s because they were having trouble getting at least 25 guys together to to do an official council of 50 meeting you know because so many people were either on missions or spread out doing other colonization efforts if that makes sense okay and Benjamin Johnson, interestingly, um, wrote, um, he, he actually said that Brigham didn't discontinue the Council of 50 in a letter he wrote in 1903 to George S. Gibbs. He says, I will say that this council as a legislative, uh, so, 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 um, he says, 
he says, to show you that I do know the motive of President Young in sending the Mormon battalion, I will say that I was one of the special council organized by the prophet of which I have spoken, in which President Young being that said, I still hold to my seat and still had a voice in all general movements relating to our exodus as a people from Nauvoo. I will say that this council as a legislature of the people did continue under the presidency, became the colonial council or legislature of the state of Deseret. I was present at the, you know, and he goes on and says that, you know, Brigham Young, you know, did try to continue the Council of 50. And even John Taylor, in he, John Taylor got a revelation in 1880 that kind of pushed him to, to reconvene the Council of 50 and, and keep it going. So, you know, it doesn't really fall, the Council of 50 continues until John Taylor is forced into exile because of the persecution in the 1880s over plural marriage, that that's when it stops meeting and, and never reconvenes. But basically, I compiled a bunch of sources that kind of demonstrate that Joseph was giving temple ordinances to select other men, even outside of you know, the, the anointed quorum. Most people think all the ordinances happened in the anointed quorum, but there were at least two or three different Council of 50 members, like James Emmett and, and um, George J. Adams, who both Lots, multiple sources indicated that Joseph had given them some sort of keys or anointing or temple authority or endowment. So even though they were in the um, anointed quorum, and I would argue that he was giving those to select members of the 50 as he was trying to send them out on assignments, basically to demonstrate that this power belonged to, you know, these men in the council of 50 as, you know, the, you know, as the literal kingdom of God on earth. Um, and so I, I I view that the last charge was a significant event, and I ended up presenting a paper on it at Sunstone in 2018. And that was my first Mormon history paper that that really kind of got me going in Mormon history. Um, and and yeah, the last charge is just a, a fascinating subject, and it's very important for us to um, you know, to understand that it does play a role in Brigham Young's succession claims, and that the apostles were claiming to have been both anointed and appointed to really lead the church. They were anointed through having received all the keys and powers of the priesthood through the temple ordinances. And they felt they were appointed to lead the church as some of the faithful brethren of the council of 50 or kingdom of God who were trying to carry out Joseph Smith's measures, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, my second paper that really got me rolling and actually publishing in Mormon history um, in 2018, so I published that paper in 2018, and another significant thing came out in 2018, and that was the full George Q. Cannon diaries. And those diaries just, you know, he was a prolific writer and, and recorded tons about um, what was going on in, um, you know, the church during the 1880s, 1890s, you know. And one thing that I thought was very significant was that he kind of records in more detail than anyone else, the circumstances behind John Taylor being anointed and ordained as prophet, priest, and king over the kingdom of God and the house of Israel on earth. And this anointing was seen in connection to the Council of 50. And I started to write a paper kind of detailing this anointing. And, and part of it was that we know we actually have the written revelation John Taylor received to be anointed as prophet, priest, and king, seer, and revelator over the church kingdom in Zion and the house of Israel on earth. Um, 
we had the revelation and there were starting to be rumors that somebody else was starting to write a paper on it. And so I was encouraged by some friends to, to do a presentation at the Sunstone Symposium on this paper to kind of give a, a bigger picture view at this, at this anointing and this history. And as I was writing about this office and this history, I realized that um, to really understand this prophet, priest, and king over the kingdom of God, you got to understand what Joseph Smith was doing with trying to make not just himself, but lots of other men be kings and priests in the kingdom of God and to understand what he was doing with priesthood during the last several years of his life. And so that kind of got the ball rolling where I, I wrote in 2019 um, three different pamphlets that were kind of on the Nauvoo priesthood developments and, um, you know, on the priesthood of kings and priests that Joseph Smith was beginning to introduce during the last several years of his life. And that kind of is how I accidentally stumbled into being a, a Mormon historian. And as one scholar kind of pointed out that I've kind of become a historian of LeBaron priesthood as well. And, and, you know, it's very fascinating. There's, there's always more things to dig up and discover in Mormon history. I've, I've heard people say that Mormon history is almost unlike any other in that there's, it's just so rich with such wide variety of views of um, theological ideas of, you know, rich, complex history of different things that went on. And, and so, you know, this kind of is a good way to transition into discussing um, LeBaronism and Ross LeBaronism and the Church of the Firstborn, because I really feel like if you don't understand what Joseph Smith was teaching and doing about priesthood in Nauvoo, there's no way you can really understand the claims of priesthood from Benjamin F. Johnson being passed to the, the LeBaron family. So I do, you know, I, I think fundamentalism has kind of struggled over the years with understanding what was going on with priesthood with Joseph Smith's lifetime. And, you know, there's been kind of a rocky priesthood foundation where there, there's almost been trying to th figure out what was going on. Like it wasn't handed to them on a silver platter that these are, you know, the things that, you know, are the priesthood doctrines there has been, you know, having to try to figure it out. And, and I do think that there's been, you know, different ideas that have been entertained over the years and different um, things that have come down that were well-intentioned, but did not necessarily have all of the checks and balances and a complete understanding of doctrine that Joseph Smith was trying to introduce with these higher priesthood concepts. Like Joseph Smith, you know, some people would say like, there's a priesthood council, that only that only answers to God doesn't really answer to the people, um, and that kind of can you know even though that's well intentioned, Joseph Smith in all of his higher priesthood teachings never taught that the highest priesthood would be kind of a dictatorship that didn't you know that would not care about what the people you know you know the voice of the people you know it was always Joseph was always trying to work for a harmony even in you know the anointed quorum in Nauvoo. He was trying to have everyone be in harmony. And in the Council of 50, that I, I think that was the big part of why Joseph wanted everything to be unanimously agreed was he was emphasizing the need of, of working together and that oneness that's not a tyrannical pecking order, but that people, you know, ex, you know, everyone bringing forth, Joseph Smith actually said, I want everyone in this council to bring the lights from the all the droppings from heaven that they can receive. And then if necessary, I will enlarge on it. 
is what Joseph Smith said. He wasn't trying to put everyone down and 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 lift himself up above everyone else. He was trying to make everyone else be prophets as well, if that makes sense. Right. So the the, the priesthood above the church, Joseph. There's plenty of statements that demonstrate there were, there that Joseph was introducing priesthood above the church in the Nauvoo period. One of my favorite is Heber C. Kimball said, I am still an apostle and I never received any greater authority than I received directly under the hands of Joseph Smith a short time previous to his death in connection with Brother Brigham Young and Willard Richards. He placed power into our hands and all the keys and authority he received from God. So he says Heber C. Kimball was ordained an apostle in 1835. But he says it wasn't until a short time prior to Joseph Smith's death that he received the greatest authority that he received from Joseph Smith. And he in during the trial of Sidney Rigdon in September 1844, he talks about this authority. He said he, Sidney Rigdon, was not in the council pertaining to the high priesthood until just before he started to Pittsburgh. Brother W.W. Phelps was the means of bringing him in, but he has not got the same authority as others. There are more than 30 men who have got higher authority than he has. Then he goes on and he says, there are men here, brethren, who have got authority, but we don't want to mention their names for the enemy will try to kill them. So Bruce R. McConkie would say anyone who claims that priesthood could be preserved through a secret line is teaching a false doctrine and is incorrect. But the reality is the here Heber C. Kimball was saying that the highest authority was a secret authority. And he said, there are men who have got authority, but we don't want to mention their names for the enemy will try to kill them. And that fits along with what Brigham Young said about how we, Joseph gave us the fullness of the priesthood, but we, you know, and they're going to try to take our lives just as they took Joseph's, but we will ordain others and give them the fullness of the priesthood so that it can be perpetuated. So Joseph, in one of his sermons near the end of his life on August 27th, 1843, talks about this priesthood. And he says, the second priesthood is patriarchal authority. Go to and finish the temple and God will fill it with power and you will receive more knowledge about this priesthood. And then he said, this priesthood was the greatest priesthood yet experienced in this church. And so this patriarchal priesthood, you know, you got to ask, well, what's this authority and when was it conferred? It was According to the sources we have, it was conferred secretly first on May 4th and 5th, 1842, um, and that's the body that came to be known as the Anointed Quorum or the Holy Order. And Hebrews, George Miller, who wasn't a follower of Brigham Young, but wrote an account of this, said that the apostles returned from England, Joseph washed and anointed as kings and priests to God and over the house of Israel. Then he lists all the men who were given this authority, then he says, and they're and, and conferred on us patriarchal priesthood. So Willard Richards wrote an account of this meeting as well in the history of the church, and it's found in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 237. And what's interesting is Joseph Fielding Smith, when he compiled Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, put a heading there that says, Highest Order of Priesthood Revealed. And then it goes on and it says that Joseph was giving washings, anointings, endowments, and communion keys pertaining to the Aaronic priesthood and so on to the highest order of the Melchizedek priesthood. And so when you look at it, the highest order and fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood, according to Joseph Smith's teachings, was to be a king and a priest. And, you know, there's numerous statements on this. You know, the most famous one is by Brigham Young, where he said, 
Um, those who have come in here and received their washing and anointing will be ordained kings and priests and will then have received the fullness of the priesthood, all that can be given on earth, where Brother Joseph said he'd given us all that could be given to man on the earth. And so most people, when they think about the authority of being a king and a priest, um, they think that Joseph Smith was kind of intending for second anointings to be passed out to everyone. I mean, at least not what the church does today, where the church under Heber J. Grant practically discontinued the second anointing, right? You know, right. he basically completely ceased having the second anointing performed. In contrast to Joseph Smith, who taught that it was an essential ordinance for exaltation. So I do think that Joseph believed that everyone was who eventually, when they proved faithful in the gospel, that the time would eventually come that everyone would receive their second anointing if they lived faithful to all the laws and the principles of the gospel, you know. And, but I do think, but I don't think that's what Joseph Smith meant when he said that he envisioned the whole church being a kingdom of kings and priests. I, I do think that Joseph originally in the Nauvoo period was actually anointing men as kings and priests in the first anointing, contrary to you know most people today, as the, as the first anointing was passed down in early Utah, you were only anointed that you may eventually become a king and a priest. But according to that statement by George Miller, and according to other statements about the, the endowment in Joseph Smith's lifetime, he was actually making men kings and priests in the first anointing so that they would have that authority even before they've you know proven themselves faithful to receive the second anointing. Um, you know, there's a statement by William Smith saying that um saying that he was present with Joseph with in the last council. William Smith didn't have a second anointing, but he wrote that he was taken into the highest priesthood lodge, was watched and anointed and clad with the robes of pure white and ordained to be priest and king and invested with all the power that any man on earth ever did possess. Power entitling me to preach the gospel, to bind up the kingdom of God on the earth among all the nations and people of every tongue. And, and he said that this authority was conferred on all the 12. This sealing power was conferred on all the 12 and not just on one man, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, and so in the not, so when I point this historical fact out to people, people ask, well, when did Joseph, when, when did the, the endowment change so that people were only anointed that they may eventually become a king and a priest? And people only really got the authority of that when they get their second anointing. I would say that in the Nauvoo temple, they were actually doing endowments both ways in the Nauvoo for the, those who they knew were good men who had, you know, who were good men and worthy to be initiated into this authority. They gave them, you know, they made them kings and priests in their endowments. But um, for the majority of the saints, they only anointed them that they may eventually become such when they, they proved faithful. So William Clayton, Joseph Smith's secretary was one of the guys that the apostles considered to be worthy of being a king and a priest. And this is a month before they did second anointings in the Nauvoo temple. He wrote that President Young, this is in his journal on December 11th, 1845, when they just start doing ordinances in the Nauvoo temple. He says, President Young said I could go and fetch my wife if I have a mind to. I immediately went down and returned with her at one o'clock. I then went into the preparatory preparation room as it was washed by elder Heber C. Kimball and George A. Smith, and then anointed a priest and a king unto the most high God by President Young and a mass alignment and pronounced clean from the blood of this generation. So they did start doing second anointings 
until January 6th of 1846. So this was about a month before any second anointings were performed. And Heber C. Kimball actually makes a comment in the to the newly endowed people, basically admitting that they were doing it both ways. He said, you have been pronounced clean, but were you pronounced clean from the blood of this generation? No, not all of you, only some few who have deserved it. If we have made you clean every whit, now go to work and make others clean. So he's basically saying, if we have given you the, spe you know, the special first anointing, giving you the authority of a king and a priest and pronouncing you clean from the blood of this generation, you should go to work and be involved with the temple and administering these ordinances to others, if that makes sense. Yep. So this is how the saints were receiving this new order of priesthood above the church. But the way they were being organized into it was through the principle of the law of adoption, where all the saints were being grafted into this great, you know, extended family. Joseph Smith actually kind of mentioned this to the Relief Society when he said, the church is not fully organized in its proper order and cannot be until the temple is completed, where places will be provided for the administration of the ordinances of the priesthood. I calculate to organize the church in its proper order as soon as the temple is completed. So he's basically saying that there is going to be a fundamental shift in the organization of the church through the recipient of, you know, the, of the temple ordinances. And I believe that that was a, a very direct reference to that Joseph envisioned that the law of adoption would be the means by which the, the saints would be reorganized into more of a family order rather than just a, a ward and stake organization. And so John D. Lee wrote in his book about how, um, about how in the winter of 1845, they began, the spirit of Elijah began being taught to the families as a foundation to this new order of celestial marriage, as well as the law of adoption. He said, quote, many families entered into covenant with each other. All persons were required to be adopted to some of the leading men of the church. In this, however, they had the right of choice, forming a link of the priesthood back to the father, Adam, and so on to the second coming of the Messiah. So I think that's an interesting Adam God statement where he says, uh, mm -hmm. the linking the chain of the priesthood back to the father, Adam, you know? Yeah. And in the, in the Nauvoo temple, Heber C. Kimball um, explained that the saints were, were, were getting reorganized through these ordinances. Um, speaking to a group of newly endowed saints, he, he, he laid out that you're coming to a place where your former covenants have no account and you're here entering a, a new covenant. Um, and this was what they really emphasized when they were coming on the trek west was that they were that they're really moving the saints into more of a family capacity instead of a, a church capacity and one thing that that really kind of stood out to me was that initially they're they're and this is what dnc 136 about the saints being organized into companies was originally interpreted as being it's about organizing the saints into family companies is what the original context of it was and so that's how they they came to Utah, but then when they came to Utah, there start there started to be kind of reservations about you know whether the saints were really worthy for the full fledged family organization. And he received Kimball sat down with his adopted family and said, if we're counseled to continue to work in a family capacity, we should be willing to do that. And if we're counseled to work in a church capacity, 
we should be equally willing to do that. So there was kind of this up in the air idea of how things were going to settle down in early Utah. Um, but um, initially when they started organizing the, the city block of Salt Lake City, it was organized and according to a, a kind of a family order. And there was like a group of blocks that were going to be for the Heber C. Kimball family, a group of blocks for Brigham Young and his adopted family. And so they kind of were breaking up the city according to kind of the law of adoption as kind wow. of a social principle of, of how the saints were being organized. But it seems that there were issues that, that there were some concerns over people abusing the principles uh, like there were men who were abusing plural marriage, obviously, like Brigham Young actually said that and Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young were really upset about a situation where a man unauthorized went and took a plural wife in such a way that he completely lost his first wife. His first wife left him over the way he, he went about, you know, trying to enter into plural marriage kind of on the sly with this other woman right. without having proper sanction and authority. And they, they were, they were, they were upset about that. They were also upset about how adoption was kind of, um, but there was concerns about people kind of having infighting over it and, and kind of, kind of adoptive fathers and adoptive sons, not kind of clashing and not really getting along. And so it seems that adoption, um, you know, eventually kind of unfortunately fell on the back burner and Brigham Young, even kind of admitted that later on in May of 1860, he, he talks about, um, he, he kind of talked about the law of adoption, excuse me, the, the, the statement was, let's see, in, April of 1862, excuse me, he, he kind of said, I will refer to a principle that has not been named by me for years. With the introduction of the priests upon the earth was also introduced the sealing ordinance that the chain of the priesthood from Adam to the last generation might be united in one unbroken continuance. It is the same power and the same keys that Elijah held and was to ex be exercised in the last days. By this power, men will be sealed the men back to Adam, completing and making perfect the chain of the priesthood from his day to the winding up scene. I have known men that I positively think would fellowship the devil if they would agree to be sealed to him. Oh, be sealed to me, brother. I care not what you do if you'll only be sealed to me. Now, this is not so much weakness as it is selfishness. It is a great and glorious doctrine, but the reason I have not preached in the midst of this people is I cannot do it without turning so many of them to the devil. Some would go to hell for the sake of getting the devil sealed to them. I have had visions and revelations instructing me how to organize this people so they can live like the family of heaven. But I cannot do it while so much selfishness and wickedness reigns in the elders of Israel. Many would make the greatest blessings a curse to them, as they do now the plurality of wives. The abuse of that principle will send thousands to hell. There are many great and glorious privileges for the people which they are not prepared to receive. How long it will be before they are prepared to enjoy the blessings God has in store for them, I know not. It has not been revealed to me. I know the Lord wants to pour blessings upon this people, but were he to do so in their present ignorance, they would not know what to do with them. They can only receive a very little, and that must be administered to them in great care. So that's a, you know, and you imagine how much more they had back then of the gospel during the time that the Journal of Discourses are being preached. And yet Brigham Young is saying, I'm only giving you a tiny bit of the big picture of, you know, what 
what the what God would ideally want us to be organized like. So the saints were all to be grafted back into the law of adoption, back to the men who were kind of the leaders of this new organization of the kingdom of God. And so, you know, there were different members of the Council of 50 who were um, getting men sealed and adopted to them. And so we already talked about how there were sources about the Council of 50 being kind of a presiding priesthood body over this organization and kind of presiding over the Council of 50 was this office of the prophet, priest, and king that I had mentioned I had given a paper on and that I was very interested in John Taylor being anointed to this um, one-man office. So we've known about this office for a long time, particularly because George Q. Cannon told his son in 1895 about John Taylor being anointed to it. He said, he said that Moses that on, on December 2nd, 1895, he said, Moses Thatcher's drawing away from the brethren commenced as far as his knowledge concerned at the time when the Council of 50 met at the old city hall and Moses opposed the, the, the proposition to anoint John Taylor as prophet, priest, and king. And Moses's opposition prevailed at that time. So can you imagine as great of a man as John Taylor was, apparently they were not wanting to have him be sustained as the prophet, priest, and king over the Council of 50. For me, that's almost, you know, unimaginable. And I just really wish that I could eventually read those minutes to hear what they were saying in those discussions. But anyhow, so the Council of 50, you know, it, this this motion to, to sustain him apparently was rejected at one time. But interestingly, John Taylor received a revelation that he still needed to be anointed to this office, just as Joseph Smith and then later Brigham Young were also anointed to the same office. Um, in 1884, he mentions this to George Cuchanan. George Cuchanan writes about it in his journal. He said, I had a very interesting conversation with President Taylor upon principle and great things the Lord has revealed. The Lord revealed to him that it was necessary for him to be ordained a king over the house of Israel, as were Joseph and Brigham. He said that he assisted in the ordination of Joseph. He and he shrank from this priesthood responsibility because it was of too much significance and glory. But the Lord had said to him that the ordinance needed to be done. I responded that I knew Jehovah had helped him. And it was clear to me that he was well acquainted with him. And he blessed his counsels and everyone that listened to him. And the church and the work of the Lord was blessed by his hand and through his presidency. So that was in 1884. A year later, he has another conversation in February of eight. February um, 2nd, 3rd of 1885, had a long conversation with President Taylor over the subject of the revelation which he had received about his anointing with oil as a ruler over the kingdom of God here on earth. Extracts were read from the records of the council respecting the actions of the council and the cases of prophets Joseph and Brigham. They were received by the council of the kingdom as prophets, seer, and revelator, and king. President Taylor was commanded by the Lord to do this thing, but he had neglected to do it and had been condemned for his negligence. He asked me my feelings about the subject. I told him that I was in full accord with him. In fact, I proposed it myself soon after President Young's death to the council. I thought the business should have been attended to as soon as convenient. He told me that he wanted to be mouthed with such as the 12 apostles as were here to lay on hands with me and I to anoint and ordain him. So then the next day at 8 p.m. in the endowment house, John Taylor was anointed and ordained by seven apostles and two other members of the kingdom. And um, the next morning, George Q. Cannon and John Taylor both expressed their joy at fulfilling this revelation. And 
It said, I rejoiced in what we had done. It is a great pleasure to do the will of God when I rejoiced President Taylor this morning. When I rejoined President Taylor this morning, which I did very early, I found him full of joint satisfaction and the spirit of the Lord rested upon him. So this was like right before John Taylor goes into exile for the last year and a half of his life. He gives one last address to the saints and then goes into hiding. But then we know what happens in hiding. He has miraculous outpouring and visitations while he's in hiding. He In 1885, even a year before the 1886 events, he has John. T he has Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ appeared to him in 1885. Um, I think Christ appeared to him first, but then later on, um, Joseph Smith appeared to him when Joseph the Third was past preaching in Utah against polygamy, and Joseph Smith told John Taylor that was he was very saddened to see his son fighting against the principles which he gave his life to establish. So while there was this prophet, priest, and king, like you know, everything was balanced. Like, you know, some fundamentalists will quote that the, the use the terms one man power or one man rule. And that's led to some trouble in fundamentalism, obviously. Um, but those terms are used in the Journal of Discourses, but there was always a balance to it. And Brigham Young would, would very clearly teach that, you know, everyone had their free agency and needed to get the spirit for themselves to, you know, know whether the doctrine he's teaching is true or not. Brigham Young did not teach prophetic infallibility. He overwhelmingly taught that he was that he could fall, that anyone could fall. Um, he says, how often has it been taught that if you depend entirely upon the voice, judgment, and sanctity of others uh, and those appointed to lead you and neglect the spirit, enjoy the spirit of yourselves, how easily you may be led into error and finally be cast into the left hand. And, you know, there's obviously the most famous one where he said, what a pity it would be if this people was led by one man to destruction. And so he says, everyone needs to get the spirit for themselves to know whether what they're being taught is the truth or not. And he said, you know, that salvation is an individual operation. So, you know, this one man office over the priesthood, you know, Joseph Smith actually originally intended this succession to be the prophet and the priesthood to go to one of his sons. Um, and what's ironic is Brigham Young preached that more than anyone else. Um, you know, Brigham Young actually said that he, when he learned of Joseph's death, he didn't think that he was going to be the next leader of the church at the time. He said, when I first heard of Joseph's death, the first flash across, across my mind was, are the keys of the priesthood here? I sat leaning in the chair and Orson Pratt was on the on the on the left side of me and i thought of it falling upon me as the most unlikely thing in the world and i felt it come like a flash of lightning to my mind and i said the keys of the kingdom are here i did not think it was with me but i felt they were here and i knew it was the lord's business and so then brigham young often would say things like what of joseph smith's family what of his boys i've prayed from the beginning for sister emma and for the whole family there's not a man of this church that's entertained better feelings towards them Joseph said to me, God will take care of my children when I'm taken. They're in the hands of God. And when they make their appearance before this people full of power, there are none but will say, amen, we are ready to receive you. The brethren testify that Brother Brigham is Brother Joseph's legal successor. You never heard me say so. I say that I'm a good hand to keep the dogs and wolves out of the flock. I do not care a groat who rises up. I do not think anything about being Joseph's successor. That is nothing that concerns me. I never asked or had a feeling, what kind of great man, O Lord, are you going to make me? But Father, what do you require of me? And what can I do to promote your kingdom on the earth and save myself and my brethren? 
So Brigham was a very humble guy. And he over and over taught that he hoped that Joseph's youngest son, David, would come forward to lead the saints if he would repent of his sins and be worthy of it. But he said, unfortunately, you know, he said that in their present condition, Emma's sons aren't worthy to preside. And so patriarchal succession wasn't the end all be all. Well, the most important thing was having a righteous, worthy man, true to the principles that Joseph Smith restored to be the head of the kingdom of God. And so, you know, Brigham Young stood in Joseph's shoes and John Taylor stood in Joseph's shoes as well. So, but what's interesting is Joseph, you know, there was this idea of that Joseph Smith's children or posterity would eventually come forward to lead the church. And there, there was this expectation that there would be a son, a son of Joseph named David that would come forward and lead the church. Um, and so what's interesting is Joseph Smith, when he introduced plural marriage, also introduced Leverite marriage, the idea that you can raise up child for somebody who sealed. So like if the woman sealed to Joseph Smith for eternity, her posterity would still be considered Joseph Smith's posterity, even though she sealed for time to someone else, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yep, so what's interesting that. is like Heber C. Kimball, Heber C. Kimball tried to raise up sons to Joseph Smith based off of this principle of liberate marriage um, is particularly with Sarah Ann Whitney, who was one of Joseph's plural wives, who there was a July 27th, 1842 revelation for her to be married to Joseph Smith. And we still have that revelation. And it says that through this order, David would, um, you know, that, that David would come forth and be glorified. And so in writing on this, what's interesting is D. Michael Quinn said, Sarah Ann Whitney and Heber C. Kimball did their best to fulfill Joseph Smith's theocratic intentions to have a birthright son named David. Following the prophet's death, Sarah Ann married Kimball for time. In Mormon theology, their children were spiritual heirs of Joseph Smith, and the apostle Kimball um, named Sarah Ann's firstborn son David, but who died in infancy. They named her second son David Orson, but he also died young as well. They named their third son David Heber. And though this Davidic care of Joseph Smith's 1842 revelation lived to manhood, but at age 17 was too young to be among Kimball's three sons who entered into the Theocratic Council of 50 at eight, in 1867. Heber C. Kimball died the next year, after which the Council of 50 did not meet again until 1818. He basically says, you know, he tried to raise up an heir to Joseph Smith, but unfortunately it, it didn't happen. Um, but what's interesting is Heber J. Grant interestingly, was originally considered an heir of Joseph Smith in the fact that his mother had been sealed to Joseph Smith for eternity, and his father, Jedediah M. Grant, you know, basically said that his posterity was going to be, you know, with her was going to be Joseph Smith's. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to think of Heber J. Grant that way when we have such a, you know, a fondness, you know, sarcasm, sarcasm there of right. everything that Heber J. Grant did when he was president of the church. But when Heber J. Grant was called as an apostle, in the same October 1882 revelation of Joseph Smith, I mean, of John Taylor saying, does not meet for men to preside over my priesthood who do not abide my law. So that, that revelation stating the necessity of plural marriage for church leaders mm -hmm. um, was the same revelation calling Heber J. Grant to the apostleship. And Heber J. Grant basically said he felt kind of unworthy for it because he was a younger guy at the time. And he told the story that he actually had a vision. Um, he was writing alone and thinking of my unworthiness when the spirit impressed upon me, just as though a voice had spoken, you are not worthy, but the prophet Joseph to whom you will belong in the next world 
and your father have interceded for you that you might be called. And now it remains for you to prove yourself worthy. And so then there's a statement he recalls that Joseph F. Smith kind of considered him like a son of Joseph Smith, you know, even though he wasn't a biological son of the prophet. So what's interesting is a lot of these principles, you know, about priesthood, you know, we, we asked the question, why didn't fundamentalists have the, the full doctrine of Joseph Smith's Nauvoo teachings handed to them on a silver platter? And they kind of had to figure things out over the years of, of early fundamentalism. I would say that there were reasons that, you know, the, you know, that the, the knowledge of the, of the higher order of the priesthood was lost to the saints over time. Um, I think the loss of it, the knowledge of the patriarchal priesthood is kind of self-evident when you start to study early Mormon history. There were no statements about patriarchal priesthood, the patriarchal priesthood of the temple after Joseph Smith's death in early Utah. In early Utah, they even stopped mentioning the fullness of the priesthood in public sermons from 1848 up until 1869, so almost 20 years of almost no mention of the fullness of the priesthood. Um, and Brigham Young's statement, recalling that Joseph Smith gave them the fullness of the priesthood and said he'd given them all that man could be given on the earth, was actually left out of the manuscript history of the church, even though huh. they inclu they included the rest of that sermon, but they actually left that statement out for some reason. And then they also, another thing that this was interesting, I, I caught my eye when I was reading the book Temples Rising, is that Moses, Elias, and Elijah's restoration of keys in the Kirtland Temple, even though it was published by church leaders in 1853 in the church news newspapers, they never talked about that in early Utah. Um, not until the, the they said the only anomalies on this are Orson Pratt um, once in 1852, once in 1859 are the only, only times it's talked about until the late 1870s. And then another one that came to mind that was also, this one kind of shocked me, this was pretty recent, was that the last charge is talked about in 1844 and 1845, shortly after Joseph Smith's um, death. But then after Brigham Young kind of told them to stop trying to prove our authority to others, the apostles kind of stopped talking about the last charge um, from, you know, 1845 up until 1869. So there's almost two decades without any real significant last charge accounts that, that talk about that. And so the apostles, I think it's evident, they kind of put the knowledge of these higher priesthood teachings on the back burner. Um, and what, what, why do you think they might've done that, Dave? Just, do you want to, throwing any guess or idea out why they put put these ideas on the back burner and kind of stop talking about them well i think that uh, probably two reasons i can think of right brigham's or you, know, you already quoted brigham where he said that you know the that it would some of these teachings would become more of a a damn tool for damnation than exaltation and the next i would imagine is that uh, you know they still feel like they have enemies out there yeah, and I, I do think, you know, like you said, you know, Brigham Young actually said, were I to tell the elders to go and build up your kingdoms, many would lie, cheat, swear, and steal to try to get, you know, to, to get right. men and women sealed to them. And so he said, you know, he, you know, there was this caution of it being abused, but there also was the context of the succession crisis, where because Brigham Young wasn't the legal successor, he wasn't like Joseph Smith's birthright heir. And Brigham Young actually said, 
you know, that Hiram was the one who was appointed, but the 12th kind of had to step forward because Hiram was killed before jo Joseph, even Joseph was killed. Um, so in the context of the succession crisis, there were other guys who were kings and priests who were trying to divide up the church and trying to draw off a party. Um, and Brigham Young was kind of, you know, he, he was saddened by that kind of spirit. He actually wrote in his journal the same day that the 12 were sustained to lead the church by the special conference on August 8th, 1844. He wrote, um, now that Joseph is gone, it seems as though many want to draw off a party and be leaders, but this cannot be. The church must be one or we are not the Lord's. So he's emphasizing the need of the unity of the saints. And this, I think, was a very pragmatic thing because, you know, a lot of people who weren't Mormon after Joseph Smith died commented that they thought that Mormonism would, would expend itself and die in confusion after the death of Joseph Smith without a head of Mormonism anymore. But Brigham Young and the 12 stepping forward and uniting the church, you know, actually really did preserve Mormonism to the world. Um, there were other guys who tried to draw off parties and build up their own kingdoms or churches based off of being kings and priests and having commissions or authority, you know, Alpheus Cutler, um, Sidney Rigdon, Sidney Rigdon was sent to Pittsburgh to build up a church. Um, Lyman White was sent to, to build up a kingdom in Texas. But when you look at all these different movements, they really kind of expended themselves in confusion. Right. Um, Lyman White's colony failed and his followers ended up kind of um, either some of them went to Utah and united with Brigham Young. But most of them actually ended up in the RLDS church just because right. Lyman White taught patriarchal succession so heavily to his followers um alpheus cutler tried to start up a church or, or a branch but his quickly dwindled to only a handful of members within a you know a, a you know a few years after his death so you know brigham young did what there's there's a principle some people talk about the principle of scattering where joseph said that um taught that there were going to be many stakes built up all throughout the americas and Brigham Young said, if a man's a king and priest, he may go and build up a kingdom if he knows how the church is organized. Um, but what's what comes before there being, you know, I don't think that scattering is the correct term for it. I think that Joseph was initially intending the principle of the gathering first so that there can be a nucleus of power for the saints to have, you know, that 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 influence and that economic and political power that comes from being united. And, and and obviously the spiritual power that comes from believers being united, right? Right. And and then after you have that nucleus, it's not a scattering. It's about a multi-gathering. You advance from, you get to the point where you have so many people gathered together that, you know, you, you it's practical to have uh, multiple gathering places. And, you know, Heber C. Kimball actually mentioned this in a statement. He said, as God organized his kingdom, so we shall organize ours. Um, he goes on to say, I will show you a simile. When you find a swarm of bees, there's a king and a queen among them, and they are increasing all the time. When they get too full in the hive, they go and ordain another king and queen who go in pursuit of a place for their kingdom, and then away they go. So, you know, I, th I do think the context was kind of more of a, a multi-gathering. And I do think that's kind of what Brigham Young tried to do in the Rocky Mountains is after Salt Lake was established in a sure, big city. Yeah. He Brigham Young is one of the biggest colonizers in the history of the West, right? He's founded 
He's responsible for founding over a hundred different cities throughout the Rocky Mountains. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, because of the political circumstances, the knowledge of these higher principles was not fully preserved publicly to the saints. And so, you know, unfortunately, it was eventually lost over time. But, you know, I do think that it's important, you know, that a lot of researchers, in the, especially in the fundamentalist world, have been instrumental to getting this knowledge about, you know, the higher organization of the church and kingdom back to the saints. So yeah. this is really foundational to understand the LeBaron story and getting into, you know, Bendreff Johnson, Almader LeBaron, and what happened there. So we talked a little bit about Benjamin F. Johnson. He, oh, he's like a little brother to Joseph Smith. He was closer to them than almost everyone. He, you know, he he nursed Joseph when he was sick in Nauvoo. Um, he he was he, he was his nurse when he was sick and, and helped helped him get better again. Um, he was in charge at, at one point of Joseph Smith's mansion house and attempted to work with Emma by the Council of 50 under Brigham Young which indicates, you know, that Joseph had a familial connection because they could only appoint people who were close with the Smith family to be in charge of renting right. out the mansion because Emma still was living there with her children. Um, and so Johnson's biography, when you actually read My Life's Review, which is a great book to read if you haven't read it before, is considered one of the best autobiographies of early Mormonism that... Um, you know, details what Joseph Smith was teaching and practicing. Um, Joseph Fielding Smith wrote about it saying, the greatest treasure house of early church historical information ever left by a single man is my life's review by Benjamin Franklin Johnson. So the LeBarons emphasize a tradition that was passed on their family that Benjamin F. Johnson had been adopted to Joseph Smith as a son. I believe this tradition, I haven't personally found the records of this stealing ever occurring, but I'm not too surprised about that because we really haven't, nobody's really gotten the the, the St. George Temple sealing records where so many of the saints in early Utah were getting all of their sealings done as soon as the temple was ready. Um, such as Brigham Young, who I was, I heard that Brigham Young had himself sealed to his dad, who was faithful in the church. And then he had his dad sealed to Joseph Smith as a son. And Wilford Woodruff did something very similar where he, his dad was a patriarch, he, he had his dad as a faithful patriarch in the church. And so he sealed himself to his dad and he sealed his dad to Joseph Smith. So we only know about that from other secondhand, thirdhand sources that um, record, like Wilford Woodruff wrote about that in his journal. But um, while adoption covenants may have been made outside of the temple, I don't think adoption ceilings were being done by Joseph Smith before a temple was completed um, based on the fact that Brigham Young and John Taylor in early Utah said they hadn't yet been sealed to Joseph Smith as, yet, yet. So that would imply that Joseph Smith wasn't doing adoption ceilings um, before the temple was completed, but was waiting for a temple to do those ordinances. Um, so I think the way Joseph Smith was kind of getting, using the ceiling power in a, he, he said in a crafty way, to seal all you can. And the way he was connecting himself to his close followers before the temple was built was by doing plural marriages with their close family members. And so, for example, Brigham Young had his sister sealed as a wife to Joseph Smith. Um, Willard Richards had his sister sealed as a wife to Joseph Smith. Um, Heber C. Kimball and Newell K. Whitney had daughters sealed his wives to Joseph Smith. And they even explained that this was dynastic, that it was to link their family to Joseph Smith. 
was the reason that you know they were right. doing and you know encouraging these their daughters to enter into those and so there's a lot of followers who are doing this and i think a lot of people overlook this as part of joseph smith's practice of plural marriage um joseph i consider benjamin johnson to be we know that he was in the smith family on two accounts first of all his mother was sealed as a plural wife to Joseph Smith's uncle, so that effectively made the, the, the Johnson family interconnected with the Smith family. But then on a, Joseph Smith had two of Benjamin F. Johnson's sisters sealed to him as wives, and so he was his brother-in-law on two different accounts, which creates, in my opinion, a lattice-working relationship stronger than an adoption. Like, you know, which, if you have to ask someone at point blank, which is a stronger of family connection, going through an ordinance with someone and being sealed to them as a son or having two of your sisters be married to them. And I, I think most people would say having two of your sisters married to someone is, you know, that that's, that's really going to, you know, that's really going to make you family in, in very deed, you know, while an adoption sealing, it's only as much effort as you put into it. Right. So right. Um, what's interesting is, Benjamin Johnson wrote about a family meeting of the Johnsons in early Utah, where he said there was a general gathering at Christmas of 1870, a general gathering of the Johnson family akin was at the social hall attended by the first presidency and principal elders of the church, at which President George A. Smith alluded to historical family incidents. He said he became acquainted with the Johnsons while journeying together in 1833, and he had known each member personally. And he goes on, he says, our family is now perhaps the largest family in all Israel. And of all the number, not one had yet apostatized or been convicted of a crime. And of them all, there was not one unwelcome to the name of Smith. And if we are not of the Smith family, then he belonged to the Johnson family. So George A. Smith was saying, if the, the Johnsons aren't Smiths, then I am a Johnson, you know, is what... Um, he what his opinion was so effectively the he considered the the Johnsons and the Smith family to have been merged. Um, you know Joseph Benjamin F. Johnson was close to Joseph Smith in that he recalled that Joseph Smith taught him about the temple ordinances even before he had received any of the temple ordinances. He wrote that Joseph had showed me his garments and explained that they were such as the Lord made for Adam from animal skins. And gave me such ideas as pertaining to endowments as he thought proper. He told me Freemasonry at present was the apostate endowments, as sectarian religion was the apostate religion. And he, he gives, you know, Johnson's writes about being about the a member of the Council of 50 in the last charge. And he also writes about being taught about the temple keys by Joseph Smith. He said the keys of endowments and plural marriage had been given, and some had received their second anointing. Baptism for the dead had been taught and the keys committed. All these things I then comprehended, though in some I had not fully participated. These sacred principles were then committed to but a few, but not, not only were they committed to me from the first, but from the first I was authorized by the prophet to teach them to others when I was led to do so. What's interesting, William Clayton's journal actually records in October 1843, um, Joseph Smith teaching Bendraft Johnson about the second anointing. He says that there were two seals in the priesthood, um, and then he then he goes and he, according to Benjamin Johnson, Joseph then seals um, him to his first wife um, by the Holy Spirit of Promise, which normally being sealed by the Holy Spirit of Promise is part of the second anointing, but there were there's evidence that Joseph was conferring those blessings on people 
in Nauvoo in marriage ceilings, you know, but outside of the second anointing. Hmm. So, so Johnson wrote in, in the, in the last two years of his life, he wrote a great letter called the, the Gibbs letter to George S. Gibbs that really kind of lays out, you know, a very long letter about his experiences in the church and Joseph Smith and things that Joseph Smith taught him and different principles and different life experiences he had been given that related to church history. And in it, he gives a very detailed account of the last charge. And it's very interesting how he details, he talks about priesthood keys, and then he makes a very interesting comment after he talks about the last charge. He said, and now returning to the council of the last charge, let us remember that by revelation, he reorganized the holy priesthood and by command of the Lord, had taken from the first presidency his brother Hiram to hold as patriarch the sealing power, the first and highest honor due to priesthood. They turned the keys of endowments to the last anointing and sealing together with the keys of salvation for the dead, with the eternity of the marriage covenant and the power of endless lives. All these keys he held and under these existing circumstances, he stood before the association of his select friends, including all the 12, and with great feeling and animation, he graphically reviewed his life of persecution, labor and sacrifice for the church and kingdom of God, both of which he declared were now organized upon the earth, the burden of which had become too great for him longer to carry, that he was weary and tired with the weight he had so long borne. And then he said with great vehemence, and in the name of the Lord, I now shake from my shoulder the, the responsibility of bearing off the kingdom of God to all the world. And here and now I place the responsibility with all the keys, powers, and privileges pertaining thereto upon the shoulders of you, the 12 apostles, in connection with this council. But if you accept this to do it, God shall bless you mightily and shall open your way. And if you do it, I now shake my garment clear and free from the blood of this generation and of all men. And shaking his skirt with great vehemence, he raised himself from the floor, while the spirit that accompanied his words thrilled every heart with a feeling that boded bereavement and sorrow. So that's in a letter to church leaders. He gives a more direct account of the last charge in his, in his autobiography, which they actually even edited in the in the very first edition of his life's review, they actually edit out all the references to the Council of 50. But in the original account, it's he gives kind of a short account. It says, at one of the last meetings of the Council of 50, after all had been completed and the keys of power committed, and in the presence of the Quorum of the Twelve and others who encircled around him, he arose, gave a review of his life and sufferings and the testimonies he had borne, and said that the Lord had now accepted his labors and sacrifice and did not require him longer to carry the responsibilities and burdening and burden of bearing off this kingdom and turning to those around him, including the 12, he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll place it upon you, my brethren of this council. And I shake my skirts clear of the all responsibility from this time forth, springing from the floor and shaking his skirts at the same time. So what's, what's fascinating. So he gives this account of the last charge, but then he says this in um, going back to the Gibbs letter. And now my dear brother, after 60 years have passed, at 85 years in age, I bury to you and all the world a solemn testimony of the truth and veracity of what I have ab written above. For although so many years have intervened, they are still in my mind as fresh as when they occurred, no doubt as a part fulfillment of a prediction by the prophet relating to testimonies I should bear of his teachings after I had become hoary with age. He said, then he goes, there were, dear brethren, other excuse me, there were, dear brother, other teachings to that council of which I am not at full liberty to write. But if I had your ear, I would remember the prophet once said to me, Benjamin, in regard to those things I've taught you privately that are not yet for the public, 
I give you the right when you are so led to commit them to others, for you will not be led wrong in discerning those worthy of your confidence. So this is a very interesting statement implying that he had some sort of secret teachings from Joseph Smith that he couldn't even write in this letter, which was in response to questions by the First Presidency about church history, about succession and priesthood. Wait, so wait, hold, hold, hold on just one second. Who's the First Presidency at this time? So this is Joseph F. Smith is the First okay. President at and um, this letter was written by George S. Gibbs, who was kind of a, a church historian, but he was, it seemed like he was writing it at the kind of the request of the first presidency because, uh, and his father was a secretary in the first presidency, um, okay. George, George F. Gibbs. And so he's saying that there were teachings not yet for the public, but you, but he's, he's recalling again that Joseph gave him the right to commit the things that he had received from Joseph to others. And in his, Biography had mentioned, you know, the temple ordinances that Joseph had taught him, not only taught him about the temple ordinances, but authorized him from the beginning to teach them to others when he was led to do so. So the question I've got to ask, did anyone ever claim to receive anything significant or any exclusive knowledge or private teachings from Benjamin F. Johnson? And the only person that I know of whoever, I'm sure he had lots of conversations with family and friends about his experience in church history, but the only person who ever came forward with a peculiar claim to having been re received exclusive knowledge in connection with special authority was his grandson, Almader LeBaron, who testified that he had been very close with Benjamin F. Johnson growing up as a, as a young kid, and that he said when he was about 10 years old that Benjamin F. Johnson gave him a patriarchal blessing and appointed him the birthright of Israel on that occasion. And in doing so, appointed him basically the birthright of Joseph Smith is how that was understood. And he, he was able to do this because the LeBarons were considered, um, the LeBaron family considered themselves to be Smiths in eternity um, partly, he, he, he said, part, you know, obviously there's the connection with Benjamin F. Johnson, but the other important connection was um, their descendant from Esther, Esther Johnson LeBaron, who was, Benjamin F. Johnson said that Joseph Smith had asked for her to be a plural wife, but that she was already engaged, so it didn't work out. And although reluctantly Joseph dropped the matter, but the family still believed that because Joseph was asking for her as a plural wife that he must have, you know, that she was intended to be Joseph Smith's wife in eternity. And so the LeBaron family, um, Benjamin F. Uh, Almader LeBaron's brother, Conway, who was a mainstream member of the church, recalled one time going to his father about the discussions in the family about whether they are Smiths or LeBarons. And he said they went to his father, who was Benjamin F. LeBaron, and he asked, are we going to be Smiths or LeBarons? in eternity and he said i expect to be smiths so that tradition goes back in the family long before dare LeBaron. that was something that was in his family line and dare was kind of raised during that time period where there was a big change in the church doctrine and teachings which you, you've kind of covered in previous podcasts you know from 1890 to 1920 you almost have a completely different church by that point because, you know, there's so many things that have been radically changed during that time period. And he, Dare was a, basically a, a teenager at that time. 
and he was a teenager in 1900, 10 years after the manifesto, when his parents were met by two apostles um, and encouraged to move to Mexico so that they could enter into plural marriage. And so they moved to Mexico and they tried to enter into plural marriage, but it ended up falling through and that failure kind of haunted um, Almader LeBaron's father for the rest of his life. He kind of, in his personal history, he mentioned, you know, she she actually later tried to say she had a change of heart and she wanted to get sealed. And he kind of had already reconciled to being a monogamous. And he said, you know, he, he says, he says, you know, would I have been better off if I've lived the higher laws? Kind of what he he kind of reflected decades later. So, but, but, so Dare was in, in this context and he said that in, in Mexico, when their family was living in Mexico, they got to meet Apostle John W. Taylor and get to be on friendly relations with um, some, a lot of these guys who are doing post-manifesto plural marriages. Okay. So this has been super fascinating, but we're two hours and 20 minutes in here. So what I'd like to do is pause here and then let's pick up again and continue talking about uh, Almadair LeBaron. And then let's move on to Ross and find out how Ross gets the mantle and then move through the rest of the history and maybe some of the teachings that are unique to the LeBarons. So we'll do that next time. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Bye.